Hello, it's 26th of April 2020 and this is episode 138 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the series. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Pretty good. Um, like I've been very pleased by the various news that we've got. I won't talk about a length because we're obviously going to talk about that in the so-called news section. Um, <laughs> and also in preparation for um, future spotlights that we're going to do on the novelizations of... I'm not sure... Are we thinking about doing the original trilogy and the prequels and then eventually the sequels again, Kirsty? Yeah, why not? Okay, awesome. Yeah, no, I'm totally game for that. I love some Alan Dean Foster in my life. Um, <laughs> now that the saga is complete. <laughs> the Alan saga, the best of sagas. Um, yeah, so basically I ordered the like, old school novelizations of um, Star Wars and Return of the Jedi off eBay. And so I have some fabulous vintage paperbacks in my hands right now. So I'm pretty excited to dig into those. They smell all old and disgusting. And yeah, it's just going to be very nostalgic to go into those. So how about you, Kirsty? Um, I did the same, but mine is a newer version and it's all three of the original trilogy books in one. So it's a, it's a brick. Nice. But but I am looking forward to getting into it. Um, yeah, the first Star Wars novel, absolutely written by George Lucas. <laughs> Oh yeah, I totally buy that. George Lucas 100% sat down and wrote that. I wonder why they made that choice. Because of course, when Splinter of the Minds I came out, they were only too happy to attribute that to Alan Dean Foster. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure it's just like a complete marketing gimmick. So I think George Lucas was actually quite well known at the time because American Graffiti had been such a huge yeah. success. So mm. I presume it's capitalising off that. It's like, see that guy? That guy who did the film you like? He's written a book and it's going to become a film. The novelization, I believe, came out a few months before the film yeah. Star Wars did, which is inconceivable now. Can you imagine if like the novelization of Rise of Skywalker had come out in like September? <laughs> yeah, it's very different times. Yeah, it's very different times. And it's literally just marketing for the film. Even today, I guess, the novels and stuff, they are still a form of marketing, but not in the same way, because the film obviously markets itself, and nowadays the novelizations sort of come after the film is out. So yeah, it just points to a very different climate, which is quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, now the novelizations come out just before the Blu-ray, so if you want to experience the story again, you just you probably wait just to watch the movie again. Yeah. No, exactly. Not an option in the oldie times. Yeah, I guess nowadays it's more just like a collector's curiosity item, isn't it? It doesn't serve the same function that the novelization was originally intended to fulfill. Yeah, it's just a different interpretation of it, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so the first news story that we're going to go into is that the Russian doll creator is working on a new Star Wars series, and this is from Variety. Um, Would you like to read out the announcement, Kirsty? Yeah, she's a co-creator because it was also Natasha Leone and Amy Poehler who worked on Russian Doll. Um, a new Star Wars series is in the works at Disney Plus, Variety has learned from sources. The series hails from Leslie Headland, the co-creator, showrunner and executive producer of the critically acclaimed Netflix series Russian Doll. Details of the exact plot of the series are being kept under wraps, but sources say it will be a female-centric series that takes place in a different part of the Star Wars timeline than other projects. Headland is said to be attached to write and serve as showrunner on the series, with the show currently staffing. Um, and then it goes on to talk about her career. Um, 
And then there's another piece from Deadline um, that says that they've confirmed the gist of the series. While the exact plot is under wraps, the series is understood to be a female-driven action thriller with martial arts elements and set in an alternate timeline from the usual Star Wars universe. Um, so that discrepancy, I'm wondering which to trust, whether it's like an AU or... I, I'm thinking that Deadline might have got confused and were basing that off of what Variety had said about it being just a different part of the Star Wars timeline. Mm. But it's within the same timeline, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know what you mean, because alternate timeline, at face value, that says to me, like, oh, what if um, Padme had survived, <laughs> or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's like what they've done with other things, like Star Trek and Marvel. Yeah, I feel like that's a whole can of worms that they, they really shouldn't open with Star Wars. I, yeah, I would be very surprised if that's what it turns out to be. And I've seen some people kind of side-eyeing that because, of course, this is the first project that has been not officially announced because it hasn't been officially announced, but um, to be rumoured from a female creator as, as the showrunner and writer. So the idea that it wouldn't be canon in the same way of all the other things, I just don't think that's going to be the case. Yeah. But... Coming back to the main event, <laughs> how do you feel about this news? Yeah, no, I'm really excited for this. Um, Russian Doll is one of those shows that I'd always wanted to watch. It always looked like something that was up my street. And literally just before we recorded, I watched the first two episodes of the season. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's a really interesting high concept premise um, that I won't state because it's the, the sort of premise that is best to discover organically <laughs> as you watch the show shall I say and I certainly was surprised in a good way <laughs> yeah it's just a lot of fun it's got a great sense of humor it's got great style it's got a fantastic soundtrack and yeah it just feels really tight and cohesive and I'm really invested in the main character already and I'm excited to see where it's all going and yeah so based on the evidence of what I've seen with Russian Doll I'm really excited and she's clearly very talented and yeah I think she could do something really interesting and exciting in Star Wars yeah I am so excited about this that I'm I almost don't want to talk about it too much because the more I talk about it and the more I think about it the more attached I get and you know how things go with Star Wars projects sometimes they don't pan out yes <laughs> People get moved around and things get dropped. So I was just so excited to read this. Um, so I hope that something gets announced officially soon. She was at the Rise of Skywalker premiere, so that seems promising. And I think, was it Deadline or Variety? Well, maybe The Hollywood Reporter. One of them said that um, the, the deal had actually been made before the Rise of Skywalker even came out. So it's months in the making now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love Russian Doll. I watched that when it first came out because I love Natasha Leone and everything. I've, I've been a huge fan of her since, but I'm a cheerleader. And um, yeah, it's such a great show. Everything that you said is true. And you're going to keep watching it, I presume? Yes, I definitely want to. It's great. If anyone hasn't seen it, you should. Um, and I think it will fill you with lots of confidence about what kind of project Leslie might go on to do for Star Wars. Like just thinking about how that kind of um, storytelling instinct and aesthetic might translate into the Star Wars universe is super exciting. Yeah. Um, and to think about her writing female characters in that universe and um, potentially with queer subtext and queer characters potentially, like I just, I'm 
I'm just so excited I can't even articulate it so just coming back to the idea of like trying to keep my expectations in check just because nothing has been officially announced yet so yeah no like it's obviously very solid it's been reported in like outlets like Variety and Deadline they clearly have actual sources telling them this stuff it's not just like a reddit rumor or something um but yeah it is the sort of thing you want to see it formalized and I'd imagine if celebration were to happen, which I really don't think it will now because of coronavirus, unfortunately. Um, but I f- would imagine that this is one of the projects they would have announced there. Um, mm. But yeah, like who knows? And I'm sure they will make it official sooner or later. But God, I, I really hope it is official. So for me, it's also so important to have like another female-led project in the Star Wars universe again. Because... Like I do enjoy The Mandalorian, but I am just that person where it means a lot to me to have female leads and female characters, because yeah, like I just love seeing women's stories, and yeah, it means a lot to me to get that in Star Wars. So I'm excited for more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious to see whether they end up being entirely new characters that she's focusing on, because it does say a distinct part of the timeline. So maybe that means entirely new characters entirely new um uh, i guess a different look at the star wars society or societies that they would have like you know we get a completely different look at the world through the prequels for example yeah um, i don't know that maybe that would be a lot to take on as part of a tv show but yeah it would it would be good for us to get a kind of sense of the ambition and and scope of what they're going to do here yeah i would really love to just see like all new characters with new or very limited connections to the old stuff because yeah i just feel like i want to see this sort of creator completely unchained to tell whatever story appeals to them in this galaxy so i feel like that's really how you're going to make the best art so yeah bring it on Mm -hmm. yeah and uh, this probably doesn't appeal to some people maybe it does more to people who are listening to our show rather than the average star wars fan but i was watching sleeping with other people the other day which was her rom-com from i think 2015 that she wrote and directed mm-hmm. um, and it's just like wow we might get a star wars creator who's made rom-coms isn't that cool yeah that's amazing <laughs> <laughs> bring it just, on yeah she's gonna bring such a different perspective so i'm really excited and this is probably making some people angry but so what <laughs> Let them stew in their rage. <laughs> oh, and just quickly, for anyone who likes Russian Doll, like segueing off that, um, and with the loosest connections, I'm sorry, but it does have Donald Gleason in it. People should watch Run because it's a very similar format to something like Russian Doll, where it's like 25 minute episodes, so it's very short and bite sized, and it's similar in that it's got like an all female creative team, pretty much. Yeah, CB Waller Bridge, right? Uh, yes, and her collaborator, I think, Vicky Jones. So I think Vicky Jones created it and then Phoebe Waller-Bridge produced. Yeah, it's just a really interesting show with a great hook that, again, I'm not going to spoil because that's the whole point of the show. <laughs> so you're seeing why I'm recommending it. Um, but yeah, people should watch Russian Doll and Run. So yeah, good double bill. Uh-huh. So the next news story that we want to talk about is that a Dr. Afra audio drama is in the works. And this is an official press release from StarWars.com. So we know this is happening. This is not up for debate, <laughs> thank God. Uh, 
StarWars.com and This Week in Star Wars, which is their web show, <laughs> are excited to reveal Dr. Afra, an audiobook original, an expanded adaptation of the kind of good, kind of bad archaeologist's introduction in Marvel's Darth Vader series. In the story, Afra makes a deal with the Sith Lord, never the best idea, and begins a memorable misadventure. Written by Sarah Kuhn, the audio drama will feature a full cast and include new scenes with some familiar faces, and we're sure that murder droids, triple zero and BT will be just as, if not more, frightening in audio form. Dr. Afra, an audiobook original, will be available for download everywhere audiobooks are sold on July 21st. So I'm pretty psyched for this because I've always loved just the whole concept of Dr. Afra. She's always seemed like such a cool like interesting character you know like a stars archaeologist what more could you want basically <laughs> um and but there's always been that barrier where i'm just not a big comics person and i'll make exceptions for my baby boy kind of friend <laughs> i haven't wanted to go down the path of getting invested in a comic series where there's dozens and dozens of issues which there are with something like afra and a project like this, it just instantly makes Afra and her story much more accessible for me. So, yeah, I'm very excited. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. I mean, she's a morally ambiguous lesbian archaeologist. Um, and I, <laughs> she's a character who has always appealed to me. But I just, yeah, like you, I'm not a comic person. I, I don't like, I, I don't know, I know we say that a lot. But I, I feel guilty about it because it's like, it kind of sounds like dismissive of that entire medium, but it's just like not how we tend to engage with Star Wars. So I know that this character is incredibly popular. So I've been kind of waiting for some, and there's been like rumors of, oh, what if there was a Doctor Aphra Disney Plus show? And I think she's like become so popular in the fandom that it's it's justifying them branching out into other mediums for her storytelling and now I'm really excited to get something like this. We love Jedi Lost with yeah, Dooku. Exactly. So it's that kind of thing again. So obviously they found that that worked for them. Um, so they're going to do it again. And yeah, we're really looking forward to it. Yeah. No, Jedi Lost was a really great production. It had amazing like production value and stuff. Like It was very immersive to listen to. And yeah, I think they could do some really high quality and cool with this. So I'm very excited. And then the final piece of news that we want to discuss is that there has been new casting announced for the Cassian Andor live-action TV series, and also some behind-the-scenes news. Uh, so would you like to read the press release from StarWars.com, Kirsty? Yeah. Um, the actor who portrayed Mon Mothma in Rogue One, a Star Wars story, is among four new cast members just announced for the live-action Cassian Andor series coming to Disney+. Star Diego Luna will be joined by Genevieve O'Reilly, who will reprise her role as Bon Mothma, as well as newly announced co-stars Stellan Skarsgård, Denise Goff, and Kyle Soller. Tony Gilroy, who co-wrote Rogue One, will write, direct, and serve as showrunner for the series, which takes place five years before the events of Rogue One. Additional writers on the series include Dan Gilroy, Bo Willimon, and Stephen Schiff. And those guys are from, well, their credits include Nightcrawler, House of Cards, and The Americans. So, And I like all of those things. Nightcrawler was a great movie, and I guess that's a... A Riz Ahmed Bodie Rook connection. <laughs> She's trying to make the Star Wars connections where I can. Yeah, maybe, and, maybe he could cameo. He's still alive at this point. You never know. Yeah. yeah, that would be. I mean, obviously, him and um, Cassian haven't met yet, but 
He could still be in the show somewhere. Yeah, there could be a whole parallel story about Bodhi Rook. I honestly can't even remember what Bodhi like does in the Star Wars galaxy, so I don't know what I'd be doing with his life. Well, so he he joins up with the the rebels because he has um the information from um oh, Jin's dad. What is his name? Galen. Yes, Galen Erso. Um, because he's working in the Empire with him. He's a pilot, right? So. He gets he gets away and gives them the information from Galen. Okay, yeah. So you, they could honestly have him then, like if they were to do that. Oh, our paths came close, but never actually crossed. Thing, but that does always feel like a cop out. I mean, Star Wars does that plenty. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It does. Um, but yeah, let's move on. From <laughs> let's talk about the people who are actually <laughs> confirmed to be in it. As much as I love Riz Ahmed, yes. you know he could turn up, but he's not announced. So yes. we have Mon Mothma again. Yes. No, which so. is amazing. Like, I'm so glad that that actress will hopefully be given a more substantial part this time, because she's gradually getting closer to actually having like real presence as a character. Because obviously, in Revenge of the Sith, her scenes were deleted, so she wasn't actually in the released movie. Then in Rogue One, she does. I, I can't remember if she has more than one scene, but she has at least one scene where she gives like a cool speech, and she's memorable. And yeah, now hopefully she might have like an arc or something. That would be really cool. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I like how dubious you sound. You're probably right to be dubious. I love the idea of it, but if she's there as a contrast to Cassian and, you know, in Rogue One she was a contrast to him and characters like Saw Gerrera, right? Politically, yeah. it was like, oh, we don't, we don't see eye to eye, but I guess we'll work together for the greater good. Um yeah, I mean, depending on your reading and perhaps your own politics in the real world, that will kind of affect how you see that kind of character, which is perhaps more of a centrist figure. Mm. Um, some might call her a coward. <laughs> <laughs> I also just want to quickly add that when I was a child, I heard Mon Mothma. I always thought Mothman. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And it, honestly, it caused me no end of confusion until I finally figured out what her name was. It's a great name. It is a great name. It's one of those Star Wars names. We're like, oh, Star Wars. You're so dumb. I love you. Yeah, but you're right. Like we get glimpses of her, especially in like the books with you know aftermath. Obviously, that's like just after the Empire has finally been defeated after Return of the Jedi and they're kind of trying to establish a Republic and obviously she's at the helm of that. But uh, at that point, we already know that it's not going to last. So everything kind of be being put into place there, that's kind of the underlying thing that, um, yes, perhaps not all of the right moves are being made. Yeah. Um, the other big name here that I actually recognise is um, Stellan Skarsgård, um, who's... I was, I'm really impressed that they got him, to be honest, because he feels to me like a really big actor. I didn't even know he did TV shows, to be honest. So it wouldn't surprise me if he's sort of like in a um, Werner Herzog type role, where he's not in it much in terms of screen time, but he has a really big presence. Hmm, maybe. I mean, it is Disney. I think they're 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 getting impressive names. I know some people are kind of turning their nose up at Disney Plus, but um, I mean. Diego Luna is an accomplished, experienced actor. Yeah, no, and it's he's true. He's going to star in it. So um, I did find it funny that they're like, oh, yeah, he was in the Pirates of the Caribbean because he's bootstrap Bill, right? If you're a fan of that series and Goodwill Hunting. But <laughs> my thing recently has been that he's in Mamma Mia. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> to be honest, that's mostly what I know him from as well. Mamma Mia star, Stellan Skarsgård. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see what kind of character he ends up being, because he's pretty versatile. Yeah. No, he's so. got real talent, bless him. So, yeah, I'm excited to see him. And also featured in the Marvel movies as that dotty professor guy. Wait, really? Yeah, yeah. No, um, I think it was the um, four films. He's one of um, Jane's colleagues. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think I've only seen the first Thor film once. Right, so. yeah. He was in that, but again, he, he's like a side character, so I don't blame you for not remembering. Right. <laughs> Although it does mean that he's now going to be more than one character in the Star- in the Disney Extended Universe, so... Ooh. Well, uh, that includes Pirates of the Caribbean, so he's got the trifecta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess as long as you're in separate franchises we're under Disney then it's okay yeah I'm waiting for the time when someone turns up apart from someone like Mark Hamill or Warwick Davis turns up as multiple Star Wars characters and people get upset about that (laughs) Adam Driver will return as (laughs) oh no Um, do you know um, Denise Goff or um, Kyle Soller I don't, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I don't. I'm sure they're very talented people. Um, they've got good sounding credits, so yeah, good for them. Uh, in that case, the other thing of no is Tony Gilroy basically like becoming the complete showrunner and creative lead for everything to do with the show, which I personally find kind of hilarious because it really is history repeating. <laughs> um, because he wasn't originally intended to be as involved in Rogue One as he came to be involved. And I also think he wasn't originally intended to be as involved in this as he is now involved. No, because I thought when it was first announced, they said it was the showrunners from the Americans. Yeah, that's right. So that's all changed. Yeah, and I remember when Rogue One came out, Tony Gilroy was a little dismissive of Star Wars as a franchise. Like, not... Not being a dick about it, but just like, oh yeah, it's just not my thing. Yeah, I, I don't see Rogue One as a Star Wars movie. I see it as a war movie, um, and that's kind of how he was approaching it. I think he said Battle for Britain or something. But um, yeah, I mean, people will feel differently about that depending on how invested they think people who make Star Wars should be in Star Wars or what that even means. Mm. Because I think someone like J.J. Abrams is hugely invested in Star Wars, but he's probably invested in it in ways that I'm not. Yeah. So... So yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. People will feel differently about that. Yeah, like I honestly think it's a complete blessing to have someone come to it fresh, like where they don't have all that prior investment and like hopes and dreams and stuff to do with Star Wars. So like, to mm-hmm. an extent, it's wonderful, you know, if you've always wanted to make something creative in the Star Wars universe and then you become like somebody in film and TV and then you're able to actually realise that. That's amazing. But I don't think it always leads to the best results because there is such a thing as being too invested where you lose sight of the bigger picture and what you're actually creating because you are ultimately enacting your like childhood fantasies to do with this property. And that's not always how you get to great art. Yeah, that's kind of what's interesting about Rogue One, especially uh, compared with the sequel trilogy, that it's obviously much closer in timeline to the events of the original trilogy. It goes right into the beginning of A New Hope. But in terms of like overall aesthetic and storytelling choices, um, and just like that sense of tone and feeling, it's quite different. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 
I I don't know the details. I feel like they've still been relatively secretive about how everything came together on Rogue One or did not. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know how much he ultimately ended up doing to bring that project together. Yeah, they. I think of all the projects, we probably know the least about behind the scenes of Rogue One and Solo because, yeah, they just haven't given anything away. The only things that we have are like these unofficial reports from the trades that came out at the time. And they all in- pointed towards massive scale chaos. <laughs> um, oh dear. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that'll be an interesting documentary in like 20 years or something when people actually feel confident enough to speak. Um, but yeah, we won't know anything solid for a while. Um, okay, cool. Anything else on that, Kirsty? Uh, I don't think so. Just that I'm looking forward to it. And uh, the only other piece of news that we don't have listed here but is that the, they're doing that making of The Mandalorian is it called like Disney Gallery or something? For Disney Plus, there's gonna be like eight episodes on behind the scenes stuff for The Mandalorian coming yeah. out May 4th. Which I'm I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, I'm not sure what it's called officially, but you're right, it's gonna be this eight part documentary series. And I am very much looking forward to that as well. I think what really sold me on it is I watched a trailer and it just showed all the directors gathered around a table and talking about Star Wars and talking about their experiences. And specifically, it had somebody, I can't remember who now, you might know Kirsty, somebody talking about what George Lucas had told them about Star Wars having to be about hope. I think that was Dave Filoni. Yeah, that's right, I think. Because it's for children. And yeah, if it's a property for children, it has to be hopeful. That's like a fundamental part of the recipe. And yeah, I just liked hearing that. It made me feel the warm fuzzies. Yeah, me too. I guess <laughs> what counts as hopeful will differ from person to person, so yeah, uh, <laughs> that's often what it comes down to in terms of the finished stories. But um, yeah, I, just, I anytime they're going to offer some input from George, I'll be interested to hear about that. Yeah, I, I don't know how he feels about all of the Disney era Star Wars, but he seems to be happy with The Mandalorian, so that's great. Yeah, no, which makes me happy because... Yeah, I want George to be having a um, good retirement where he can look at his property and feel something positive about it. <laughs> yeah, just thinking about George Lucas sat at home watching The Mandalorian and squeeing over Baby Yoda <laughs> makes my heart sore. So It is lovely. So the spotlight today, it's going to be a return to our favourite subject, which is Raylo. Um, so yeah, I feel like it's been a while since we had a proper Raylo episode and that's obviously what made us like uber passionate, uber invested as we are. And I think in the wake of the rise of Skywalker, where obviously we get more fundamental building blocks to the Raylo story, we felt like it would be a good time to do a new episode taking those developments into account and sort of reassessing the whole trajectory of that dynamic and our feelings about it. And yeah, how about you, Kirsty? What are you coming to this discussion with? Whenever we approach this topic, I'm always like trying not to get overwhelmed because there's so much to say, always. People who've listened to the podcast for a while will know that we we never get tired of talking about these characters and their relationship. Um, but it almost feels like such a a big thing to approach now that the story's been told. Because for a long time, we were kind of analysing things act by act and then speculating, but that's very different from analysing a story once it's complete. 
Yeah. Um, and I don't think we'll even be able to get close to being exhaustive about it today. Like there's still going to be so much for us to say in future. So we're just going to kind of come at it from one angle like we have before in terms of picking um, a text for us to kind of work from as a reference um, that we would then recommend to people who seem interested based on the discussion we're going to have. Uh, I can't recommend the book that we're going to talk about enough. What is there to say? We love these characters. We love their relationship. We love their story, even if we don't love entirely how it ends up at the end. Well, they're always going to mean something to us. And the fandom that's been built around those characters is always going to mean a lot to us, I think. Yeah. No, that's really well stated. Um, and to prevent people from being held in suspense much longer, the book <laughs> that we're going to be referring to quite a bit throughout this discussion is The Dangerous Lover, Gothic Villains, Byronism, and the 19th Century Seduction Narrative by Deborah Lutz, which, yeah, is a really good book, and it has my enthusiastic recommendation. Um, it's a really great examination of that whole Byronic hero trope, and especially how it's been appropriated into romantic fiction. So it does actually go beyond 19th century literature. It looks way into, like, cheesy, like romance novels from the 20th century as well which is very delightful because there's some particularly fun passages from those that are quoted yeah i think she makes references to trash so she's talking about like highbrow versus lowbrow and how this kind of archetype can be found across the centuries across different genres he turns up over and over again um but always has this consistency in terms of the things that he's supposed to represent to the human psyche um how he's adapted to whatever the contemporary fears and stigmas are in society and how it's kind of open-ended as well so the audience will project onto them whatever their own fears and concerns are which you very much see with a character like Kylo Ren and why the discourse is so fun and we're always <laughs> keep, keep turning away because guess what people are still writing angry articles about Mr. Rochester <laughs> it doesn't go away that's what makes these characters so compelling and and, and so frustrating in equal measure, right? Um, they get people passionate for good and for bad. Was this your first time reading this book this week? Yes, no, it was. So I um, ordered it from Amazon specifically for the purposes of this discussion. Um, mm. And yeah, I read it. So we're very fortunate to have lovely sunny weather in Britain at the moment. So I was just out in the garden enjoying the sunshine in socially <laughs> isolated fashion as I read my book. So yeah, that was very pleasant. Um, and yeah, like I was really impressed. It's a very like probing analysis of the particular trope. Because I think the Baronic Hero, it's something that everyone's familiar with, even if they don't know that specific label for it. It's the guy who's like brooding, who has like all these like deep wells of pain within him that he's not able to express unless it's to the select few that have like been able to penetrate his like vulnerable squishy inner emotions and yeah it's just one of the my favorite tropes in fiction and the books a delight to read and just going through it the parallels to like Kylo Ren and the whole Raylo dynamic they're just wow so that really is what was going on wasn't it and yeah it's quite revelatory in that way yeah, I read it pretty shortly after watching The Force Awakens, so in 2016 sometime, because <laughs> after watching that, um, and I'm sure we've talked about this on the podcast in terms of like our experiences 
coming into the sequel to Leaky Fandom and then like trying to talk about what was going on with these characters and what kind of discussion was going on at the time. Because Kylo had seemed like such a clear example of the Byronic hero archetype. But that wasn't really being acknowledged or agreed upon by much of the wider fandom. Um, this was before I'd found like Tumblr and the Raylo community. And just reading this like made me feel less crazy because, like you say, he lines up so well with a lot of what Lutz has to say about the tropes that are kind of common with these types of stories and the typical arcs of these characters. Um, but yeah, it kind of made me feel less alone in what I was seeing. Um, and Lutz is a, a Bronte scholar as well, so she has other interesting books about the Bronte stories and what they were trying to say with these characters and their heroine counterparts. And um, I guess we should say that like this book specifically is focusing on the archetype, but you can't talk about the Byronic hero without talking about the heroine as well. Mm. Yeah. Or, or at least of the type of stories where he shows up and there's a heroine counterpart or a, a, a protagonist like like Ray for the sequel trilogy. But um we'll have we'll definitely have future episodes where we focus more on Ray herself. Yeah. No, because it's important to state that obviously because this book is very much about that character type that is the baronic hero like there is less emphasis on the role of the female counterpart in that dynamic like it is acknowledged and the book does go into that but it's just not explored in as much depth or given as much attention which yeah as Kirsty said is something we're very aware of and we absolutely are going to do more episodes on Ray individually and yeah that will include her as an individual, her in relation to Kylo, etc, etc. So if this discussion does feel a bit more weighted towards the Kylo side of things, that's why. Um, but yeah, because we are going to have a future Ray episode, we would really like to remind people that we really want to hear people's pieces on why they love Ray and why that character means something to them. So we did this a few months ago with Rose and we had some really amazing emails where people were just describing how that character had meant so much to them seeing her on screen. And we know that Ray is similarly loved and valued by fans. So yeah, if you have a message you'd like to send us that we could read out on the show about Ray, you can email us at scavengershoard at gmail.com. Yeah, I also want to refer people back to our Cyclove episodes we did um, last year. I think it's episodes 108 to 110, uh, where we considered the sequel trilogy and Ray and Kylo's story specifically in relation to myths and archetypes, specifically Cupid and Psyche. We Was it the he and she <laughs> feminine <laughs> yes. psychology? Wait, I've got it here. I've got the book. One second. No worries. <laughs> She, Understanding Feminine Psychology by Robert A. Johnson. So he took the myth of Cupid and Psyche and kind of ran with that in terms of what the fundamentals of the story of uh, femininity. Be and that doesn't apply just to f female characters, actually. But um, in terms of integrating the shadow, which is, I guess... Cupid and Psyche is one of those formative stories, right, where a lot of other stories come after that, including things like Beauty and the Beast and, we believe, the sequel trilogy. Um, yeah, I, I, we can't get into it today because it's just too much. <laughs> um, but 
I think that's a good one to refer back to. And we're, we're definitely going to come back to it now that The Rise of Skywalker is out, because there were things that we were talking about in that series. Some of them have panned out, some of them have not so much, but we'll get into it another time. Just that is worth going back to if you haven't already, um, because that's kind of another riff on it, because Cupid in that story could be seen as the dangerous lover, right? Um, a, a very early iteration of him, at least. Yeah. I would need to listen to the episode again before judging how well we did. But I feel like we had a pretty decent hit rate with that episode. So, yeah. Like, if I'm wrong, tell me, because I want to know. <laughs> Maybe not the first time around when I was watching The Rise of Skywalker, but, well, I've only seen it twice. But <laughs> when I, as I was thinking about it, I was like, you know, as dissatisfied as I am by certain elements, there are other things that do line up with what we were theorising in terms of Palpatine being that, like, jealous, older... Aphrodite figure jealous of the young lovers and trying to take I mean you know he, he sucks the life force out of them right yes. like he that that is pretty on the nose not sure about intent explicitly but um you know the the idea of Psyche going through all of those different trials and whether you love or hate the MacGuffins the various MacGuffins and the Rise of Skywalker those trials and that physical journey that Rey goes on with her friends that as well is part of the, the tale of Cupid and Psyche. So there are definitely elements. Again, I don't know how, how explicit, but it, it doesn't matter so much whether that was the explicit intent because it's archetypal, you know? So Yeah. Now, when we talk about all these influences, we're not necessarily thinking about JJ and Terrio sitting down and reading the collected works of Lord Byron or like revisiting <laughs> Wuthering Heights for the fifth time because... Yeah, it's just sort of these types and these patterns of storytelling. They're so embedded into our like pop culture and I feel like the psyches of any creative people at this point that, yeah, they don't even necessarily need to be conscious influences to come through. And there certainly are aspects of conscious intent that we'll talk about in the discussion. I don't think it needs to be quite as one-to-one as some of what we're saying might suggest so always bear that in mind yeah another episode that i think people might want to listen to if they haven't already is episode 85 where we talked about the mad woman in the attic so again that's kind of focusing on a specific element of the baronic hero archetype in literature that's gothic romance right so mad woman in the attic is obviously referring to something like jane eyre Mm. um and wuthering heights we talked about too so I see these discussions ongoing in fandom and maybe it depends on like which particular version of a story people are talking about because obviously there are many Heathcliffs, there are many Rochesters and each actor and each storyteller has a different spin on it. Um, but yeah, there's there's an interesting conversation always going on in terms of what people's specific reading of Kylo is and which other well-known Baronic hero he most seems to fit, fit and... Um, yeah, I think people have their own interpretations of that. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. I find it fascinating how people look at the character and come away with such different ideas about what he represents and like where he lies on the moral spectrum and stuff. That one's especially interesting to me. But yeah, so with this, I know there was a particular quote from the introduction of the book that you wanted to read out, Kirsty. Would you like to deliver that for us? Yeah, I just thought it might help people to kind of set the scene a little bit with some of the introduction. 
because the scope of this is really, <laughs> really vast, right? She's basically scaling the history of this archetype through the centuries, and he turns up everywhere, as we all know. Um, so I was going to read a little bit out for people. Standing always under the sign of longing is the dangerous lover, the one whose eroticism lies in his dark past, his restless inquietude, his remorseful and rebellious exile from comfortable everyday living. His ubiquity marks him as always central to what we mean when we talk about existence and the modern self. And this is not despite the fact that he lives and moves and has his being today in popular historical romances and romantic cinema, female-coded genres, but rather because of this lowbrow presence. Or, more essentially, because of his lasting and pervasive presence everywhere, he stretches his pained existence back to Elizabethan and Jacobean tragedy and forward to the mass-market romance and to, well, all points in between. Why do we desire so readily, so uninterruptedly and incessantly the demon lover? Why is it that the subject who lives imprisoned in the blighted landscape of his own mind, who is doomed only to repetition and a desire for death until his possible redemption by the utterly unique moment of love, become himself the true cipher of longing, the essence of the movement of desire? And I could keep reading because one of the problems we had when talking about this book together was uh, we want to quote all of it. <laughs> Because so much of it fits this story and this character. But that's the point. So please go and read it. Yeah, that was a great book. Um, and I'd also just like to read a quote that I picked that um, I felt was really good for Send Scene. So, rife of paradoxes, the dangerous lover stands in a modernist sense, always in between. The one who fails, yet holds the most power. Who describes of his subjectivity, the infinite yet can be read through and through by a glance at his face, who is never so close to his beloved as when he appears irreparably severed from her, who arrives at the end of the romance united and whole, yet is the one always fallen apart. As beloved, pieces of him are picked up by the other, an attempt is made to fit them together, to pull together a concept of self, an entity with enough substance to be loved, to place hope in. Love becomes creative, based on reconstituting the beloved again and again. That's obviously stepping forward from Kirsty's quote, because that's getting more into the romance aspect and these two people coming together and what happens when that union occurs. Um, but yeah, because we are going to be talking about Raylo as a romance, I felt it was nice to go into that a bit. Yeah, and I, I think these quotes are making me feel a little better about what JJ and Terrio were trying to do with The Rise of Skywalker. Mm. I'm never going to fully be on board with the specific choices made in terms of the, the ending of both Kylo and Rey's story, to be honest. But I get where they're coming from in terms of identifying with the other, integrating, accepting. It's just in terms of how that's actually executed. Yes. If you see what I mean. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally see what you mean. And that's completely valid. But yeah, I felt the same way when I was reading these quotes. I was like, it's not always done in the best way. But God damn it, if a lot of what is done with Rain Kylo in The Rise of Skywalker doesn't match what this is describing quite well, it, yeah. it just does. <laughs> I think one of the issues with the sequel trilogy as a whole and and you see it to varying degrees across the film, is that, you know, one of the reasons when we watched The Force Awakens and we were so taken by this dynamic, and a lot of fans were calling us crazy and, you know, morally depraved and all that fun stuff, um, which this book actually gets into, <laughs> because uh, this is an archetype that's obviously been controversial for a long time, for clear reasons. Um, 
Yeah, I think one of the problems and one of the reasons we were so interested in The Force Awakens, and we're going to get into this as we talk about the story as it goes, but part of the appeal, and I guess part of the frustration with The Force Awakens, is that so much is left unsaid. Um, So it opens the story up to so many possibilities, which is really exciting, and it really excited the fandom as a whole and we you know we talked about it for so long before the last jedi came out um i think it's why people can't stop thinking about their dynamic even now the story's over that between these characters there's so much left unsaid and not just between them but between all the other characters too right like it's established in their very first interaction in that forest that when he reaches into her mind and then deeper after that into the interrogation there's this powerful idea that they're communicating in ways that are deeper than what can be conveyed to the audience, but also to the other characters in the story. So it's it's this real ambiguity, and it lends itself to the idea of the, the audience really projecting onto these characters. And that's a really personal thing. I think that's what it comes down to when we try and talk about it with people that we may not know very well, as how a lot of online discussions go. People are kind of making assumptions about each other, they don't know always where people are coming from and why these kind of archetypes and characters might mean so much to people in different ways. I think that's maybe what makes it so difficult. And even now the story's over, there is, however much we might feel that certain things are made explicit, there's also a lot of ambiguity. And that can be a great thing, and it can also be a really frustrating thing. Yeah. No, I think you've nailed it, because, yeah, the reason we've been talking about this subject for so long is precisely because of that ambiguity. So there's this del- delicious friction that occurs where we sort of need the ambiguity because it's the engine to our fascination, essentially, because there are all these uncertainties and these mysteries and these puzzles that, like, as viewers, like, really engage us and feel like they deserve theorising and thinking about and reflecting upon. But at the same time, that leads to all this grief where you get people coming at it and they have these wildly different perspectives and that can cause people to get very upset and like be and essentially be like how are you seeing that that's not there at all (laughs) and it's like well it is to me yeah and yeah like it was just such a roller coaster for that whole period between force awakens and the last jedi and even after last jedi for a long time to be honest which Seems quite incredible to me in retrospect, but it definitely happened. Even now, honestly, um, you know, we kind of construct our own notion of fandom and kind of make our friends and have our little corner. So sometimes you feel a bit like sheltered from the larger discussion going on. But honestly, sometimes even after we had these characters kiss and Ray confess that she wanted to take his hand, it it does get kind of glossed over by some people. And maybe it's just not their... It's not why they're interested in the story or these characters. So yeah. I, I'm just... I'm forever wondering, like, was that also by design so that fans could kind of pick and choose what they wanted to see in the story and then the idea is that everyone's satisfied to an extent? Is that a bad thing? And like, what does it mean for the lasting legacy of the story and the Skywalker saga as a whole if fans can't even agree on the fundamentals? Or is that a thing that's always been the case with Star Wars? Have people always disagreed even about the original trilogy? Because I sometimes I come across takes about the original trilogy where it's like 
people don't even believe that Vader was redeemed. And to me, that is such a fundamental that it's like, wow, okay. Like, maybe we're not watching the same story because we're, maybe we all come to it with such different things and maybe that is, that's just how it's going to work. Yeah, it is one of those fascinating questions. I feel like that's the sort of thing that crystallises a bit more as time passes. Um, and this might be my bias talking, but I'd like to think that there is, for the most part, a consensus where people perceive the original trilogy as this redemption story about a son's love bringing his father back to the right path. Um, but yeah, there are obviously going to be people who disagree with that. But I think George Lucas has literally stated that as the intent of the original trilogy. And mm. there's obviously retrofitting going on there because Vader wasn't Luke's father when they made Star Wars. Um, but it works as that, essentially. That makes sense as the story. And mm. yeah, I don't know about you, Kirsty, and I, I think you'd probably feel the same. But I would love to hear someone like JJ come out and just give a mission statement. This is what the point was of the sequel trilogy because that's what we don't have. I'm, I'm honestly not sure. <laughs> Because I think I said to you before recording that on one hand I do want that so that I can stop turning it over and over. But on the other hand, I'm like, maybe Death of the Author has some rights. Like, <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe it would be liberating in a way if we all stopped caring so much about what the creators think. Because yeah. the, the story's been told now, right? Yeah. Um, I think one of the issues that we have with how The Rise of Skywalker wraps things up is that for The Force Awakens, and definitely for the events of The Last Jedi, Rey's story did largely circle around Kylo, and it does in The Rise of Skywalker, but not to the same extent. There's all sorts of other stuff in there, in terms of her relationships to other characters, that don't actually feel fully earned to me. And it's why that ending is so jarring, and doesn't feel like the natural culmination for a coming-of-age story. Um, it, it shifts the focus and it makes Ray's motives and what she really cares about and wants very muddled. Yeah. Um, they really try to have their cake and eat it too in terms of what the actual central journey for Ray was, especially with the whole Ray Palpatine thing. Um, yeah. So I think that's why, you know, I, I, I can't think of another story that incorporates this coming back to the, the book that we're talking about, the dangerous lover archetype, to a degree where he feels both incredibly central and yet towards the end is kind of undermined and almost forgotten yeah like this is one of my main like, areas of interest with what's going on with the sequel trilogy so i feel like romance as a genre is very overpowering unless it's placed under very strict limits take for example a marvel movie so those movies they have love stories but they're very distinctly side stories and if you look at all those love stories, they're always love stories that are very like low stakes in terms of you get two people who are both essentially good guys. They're both on the same side. They're pretty people. They fall in love. And then that's used as like leverage by the villain or something, you know. So it's like a side story that feeds into the plot, but it's not the purpose of the plot. Whereas with Raylo, that's a very different type of love story. It's the type of love story we're talking about here is a very like central one by its very nature because it's about opposites and people who are contradictory and it's all about them having to travel a path where they eventually integrate and reconcile despite these vast differences between them 
and that is the sort of story that usually dominates the narrative like it dominates the narrative in Jane Eyre it dominates the narrative in someone like Wuthering Heights and those kinds of stories I feel like with the sequel trilogy they wanted to have their cake and eat it too by telling that sort of overwhelming powerful narrative but also having all this other shit happen as well (laughs) and it's almost like but you can't do that with this type of story Do, do you see what I mean no, I do, because um, in The Force Awakens, and I think we talked about this at the time, the main villain, Snoke, was not Rey's villain. He he was the shadow figure in Ben's story, right? Mm, yeah. um, and even in The Last Jedi, it's like established that Snoke doesn't really care about Rey. He wants to use her to get to Luke. Um, it's actually surprising to the degree at which he sees Rey as disposable. And it's just like, oh, she's just another test for Ben, um, just like his father was. Um, and then, of course, the introduction of Palpatine reverses that, and suddenly Rey has this other bigger villain. So it's no longer about Rey and her animus as, like, the central story. Or that is central, but then all of these other things are kind of competing for it, so it gets muddled and can be lost, depending on your reading. So when The Force Awakens came out, we were excited about it because it felt like a real twist but a natural evolution for a heroine to have her version of the Luke and Vader story, except instead of this scary mother figure, which you, you get in a lot of fairy tales, the the shadow is her animus. He's the shadow and animus wrapped in one, and that's the dangerous lover. So we were really excited about that because that was new for Star Wars, at least in the movies. Um, so that was going to be the central love story in the way that you get Han and Leia, But it's like Han and Leia and Luke and Vader wrapped in one, right? Yeah. So that's why we were like, wow, this is the story. This is so pivotal and central. This is like the thesis statement of this trilogy. But it's almost like they chickened out over the course of it. And I don't think that's true of The Last Jedi. Because if anything, that made it even more central. Yeah. But for some reason, The Rise of Skywalker backs away from it a little bit. Even as, as we, we mentioned... You know, we see these characters kiss. We see Ray confess her love. He dies for her, like he sacrifices himself for her. So you you can't get clearer than that. But in the same story, it's like kind of swept under the carpet. So it's this really interesting dichotomy going on here. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating. Um, like there's so much to talk about. I kind of feel like we should probably progress into talking like more chronologically about the evolution of this dynamics we have a lot of notes <laughs> so I want to make sure we can get through as much as possible so what I'm going to start with is another quote from Lutz which is for the Baronic hero the tragedy already happens before the story begins in the time of the dangerous lover it's always too late to find grace to be an idealistic youth to believe to have faith to find true love again to live in the present moment and oh. <laughs> are you just thinking like that's so perfect yeah that's exactly the story that's this character we were talking about this last time with the kylo ren comics it's too late he always thinks it's too late and that's the tragedy yep that's exactly why i picked this quote because <laughs> i felt like this perfectly encapsulated force awakens kylo ren because i think a part of that fascination that we felt when we saw the movie is this whole suggestion of a secret, hidden, mysterious past going on with that character. You have all these allusions to things that have happened in his past, like a boy who betrayed Luke and destroyed everything. 
Um, and then you have Kylo's own very apparent guilt about things that happened in the past, even though those occurrences are quite ill-defined. And most importantly, these sorts of mysteries and dark secrets, they're experienced through Ray's eyes a lot of the time. Like She's the one listening to Han when he tells the story about Ben falling to the dark side. And she's the one like taunting Kylo about his insecurities and his like posturing in the interrogation chamber. And there's all these suggestions of this layered backstory that doesn't actually get revealed. And yeah, it's that mystery, I think, that is part of what makes that as a foundation for a romantic dynamic so engaging. What do you think, Kirsty? No, definitely. I think that's um, why we became so interested in Ray. Not Ray herself, because she obviously has a lot of other interesting things going on with her arc and, and her past too. But I think they complemented each other so well. And it's why I, at least, I don't, I don't know about everyone else, but I was so invested in Ray as a nobody at that time because I thought that was the perfect complement and contrast to the story of Kylo as the legacy child of the Skywalkers and kind of being broken because of that. So Ray coming into the story almost as the the audience's self-insert, like discovering what the hell happened to the Skywalkers over the last 30 years? What happened to this child who turned into a man and is doing such despicable things, yet feels this level of guilt and regret over it, but also feels this like fatalistic, it's too late for me, this is my destiny, this is what my grandfather stood for, and that's what I have to emulate, because what else can I do? Um, it was really compelling. And there was this clear idea, for me at least, that going into the next movie, Ray's perception of this character would be challenged. And that is what happens. But yeah, it was like intentionally mysterious. So like you say, Han was making like these oblique references to the boy who ruined it all. And you had that conversation between Leia and Han about, well, she knew that Snoke was there and manipulating things, but it wasn't clear like to what extent Ben was responsible for whatever it was that happened. So it was intentionally left open-ended for then Ryan to come in, right? Yeah. And like, if you think about the trope in other forms of literature and media, and I'm going to be referring a lot to Bronte novels in this, guys, so you have to bear with me, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but in Jane Eyre with Rochester, that character is completely reaved in mystery for so much of it. And gradually, of course, you get this whole idea of him having this dissolute past that he's just filled with pain and regret and grief over because he made so many bad mistakes and completely wronged himself and other people and with Heathcliff and Wuthering Heights he's this mysterious orphan child who sort of popped up out of nowhere and there's just this permanent mystery about him like he popped up like a spectre and yeah it's just one of these fundamental foundation stones for these characters and I think what you said about the importance of Ray being a nobody in contrast to Kylo having all this baggage and this like high lineage I suppose I feel like that's also explored a lot in what Lutz is arguing in the book because she talks at great length and right now I don't have any specific quotes to pull about this about how this whole romantic dynamic is heavily founded on this idea of attraction to the other and seeking Mm -hmm. something different from yourself 
And I feel like for that romantic trope to be executed most powerfully, it really helps to have those contrasts be really extreme. So that dissimilarity between their respective backgrounds really made that much more powerful and magnetic, in my opinion. Yeah. We'll talk about it when we get to the Rise of Skywalker later, but I do think that's one of the things that gets lost a little bit in that notion of the dyad being because she's a Palpatine and he's a Skywalker. Yeah. It's just, it's just different. So, yeah, we know the, these stories. Like, you know, Jane Eyre, that's, that's kind of what this is, that she comes from nothing. But the thing is that she wasn't always a nothing. It's like a, a journey of self-discovery and self-validation for the heroine as well. It's like this, you know, that that idea of that it's there was something always inside of you. She says it herself, right? Like there was something always inside of her, and now it's awakening, and she's discovering it and accepting herself, and that's embodied in the other, the the figure. Like it's a metaphor. <laughs> yeah. So I think one of the most romantic aspects of the whole dynamic in the sequel trilogy is that it's so fundamentally metaphysical in terms of it's about the fact that they can feel each other's emotions, they can see into each other's minds, they can communicate across vast distances, and it can be like they're in the same room touching. Like All that stuff is just so incredibly romantic. And I think it's precisely because it is sort of like an abstracted version of love that it feels that much more powerful and mythic. That's why it's been so fascinating because it's not like a romance set in our real world. I mean, even Jane Eyre, it has that they can hear each other in their minds, right? Across the moors. It has that magical element, the, the supernatural. And the the beauty, again, kind of coming back to that thing I said earlier about a lot being left unsaid between them, um, that they're communicating in a way that even puts a wall between them and the audience. So it's not just other characters that aren't privy to their relationship. Um, even when we're watching something like The Interrogation, they're in each other's heads and seeing things that we're not seeing and that's not fully conveyed. Like when they're talking about, oh, I saw something too in The Last Jedi, when they they touch hands, we're seeing that in terms of like the connection. We can see the the looks of awe on their faces, but we're not seeing everything. And that's I think that's very much by design. So it gives us this magical quality. It's theirs and theirs alone. And when other characters do come into it, it's pretty much always presented as a violation. Yeah. When Luke walks into the hut, it's that he's interrupting this private moment. When Snoke reveals his knowledge of the bond, it's seen as like this betrayal that they thought that they had this thing that was theirs and there's this sanctity to it and that they created it themselves or it was like born of the Force. So it has this magical feeling and it's now got this idea of it being twisted for evil and for ma- manipulation and then in the rise of skywalker when palpatine discovers that there are dyad he then uses it to power himself back to full health right yeah um so yeah it's this idea that like it's theirs and it's private but if someone else comes into it they'll either misunderstand it as the way the snoke does and that costs him his life or in the case of palpatine it's like it's then twisted for malevolent purposes. Yeah. I think it's just that extraordinary intimacy that I'm still amazed that it happened in a Star Wars film. I honestly just can't think of anything equivalent in terms of big blockbuster filmmaking 
where there's a depiction of a relationship that's so intimate and unspoken. I feel like there's real leaning in towards making things very literal and obvious. So as frustrating as the ambiguity can be, I'm also very grateful for it for that reason. Yeah. I mean, one thing that Force Awakens does really well is that it establishes this idea of destiny and inevitability of these two characters meeting before they've met. Because Rey touches the saber at Maz's castle and then sees Kylo in a vision, which is obviously echoing what she's going to see later on in Starkiller Base when he confronts her in the forest. Um, But also, even when Kylo hears about her from Mataka, it's what girl? And he has such an overtop reaction that then cuts to the scene with Rey, who's reaching towards where Kylo just was as he was reaching that way. Like there's, There's this real intent, I think, to the way these characters are connected before they've even met. And I, I do think that speaks to this kind of archetype that we're talking about too. It was fate, basically, that brought them together. They were always going to meet. And then, of course, that's made explicit later on in terms of like the dyad, that they are literally each other's half. Other half. But, um, yeah, I think the the confirmation of that idea that they were like connected in a sense that they could actually feel each other through the Force in the Kylo Ren comic, when Rey senses his fall. And that that was a kind of nice nod to that feeling that we got from their interactions in The Force Awakens. Yeah, no, absolutely. I really love the inclusion of that. And it just gives it this even grander dimension, I think. Like this idea that, yeah, since the moment like Rey was born, like there has been this link there, even if neither of them could articulate it or knew really what it was that did exist and yeah just that element of predestination is something quite powerful in that yeah so then we have another Lutz quote which I just briefly wanted to talk about in relation to Force Awakens full of vengeance the dangerous lover wants to assuage his pained existence through making others feel torment as he does the latent violence in his eyes turns on the whole world a hate that desires destruction because the dangerous lover believes everything is fragments of his own mindscape, his self-loathing remorse is a small step away from lashing out to others. His self-punishment so easily becomes other punishment. Hello, TFA Kylo. Yep. <laughs> I had to <laughs> include this quote because it just screamed like early 2016 meta to me. And it's like, oh my god, it's so nostalgic. I love it. <laughs> it was just great. As Kirsty just suggested with her comment, this just perfectly encapsulates kylo's psychology i think in the force awakens because he is so destructive and he's so full of rage and anger and you see that manifest in all sorts of ways like right from the start when he goes to tuanal the village on jakku um and right through to the final battle in the forest at the end and it's just really interesting to see that violence contrasted with and complemented by ray and how that intersection between those two characters like reverberates and impacts on that violence. I, I know I wrote a lot at the time about how much karma he always seemed to be around Ray, And yeah, I just feel like that fits perfectly into this whole trope. And the quote I read out at the beginning, actually, this whole idea about these love stories taking fragmented people and piecing them back together and finding a route towards wholeness and reasons to hope again and yeah I just love it 
Yeah. I mean, I say The Force Awakens, Kylo, but he also kind of comes back to this mindset at the end of The Last Jedi. Mm. And I do think that's intent. It's, it's intentional because it's in response to that, like you say, that that inner pain and something hurting too much. And we've, we've talked about it before, but none of what Kylo does is out of a sense of like political gain. Like he almost becomes supreme leader by accident, right? Yeah. Um, he doesn't kill Snoke to take the throne. He kills him because he doesn't want to kill Ray. Yeah, he he's just lashing out at others because he hurts so much, and that inner pain becomes external pain and suffering for others, and it's it just kind of snowballs. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very hard to love this character because it it it's painful to watch him, but it's also relatable for those of us who can see in ourselves patterns of self-destruction and being our own worst enemy, basically. Yeah. And I think what I really appreciate as well is how Kylo, he's a contrast to Rey, but he's also a mirror of her. Because as you mentioned earlier, Kirsty, Rey also has her own mysterious past and she also has lots of pain and anger residing within her. And mm. I feel like it's that idea of them being similar or even the same sometimes that is one of the biggest draws of this relationship because like in a lot of the fiction that Lutz explores there's like a very like crude contrast between the like virginal innocent heroine and then the brutish brooding man who's like more experienced and who she sort of has to tame and everything and I feel like it's much more level in the sequel trilogy and that the characters are really on par and that equivalence between them and the sense that they're such equals in so many ways that's as big a part of the attraction as the fact that they're real foils to each other and they're so different Mm. it also comes back to these like weirdly gendered notions of how people should feel that they can express or hide their trauma and their pain Mm. because like you say, Ray has just as much of a traumatic past, but she represses it and doesn't allow to herself to express that. And is when we meet her in The Force Awakens, is very much on this level of denial where she's like, yeah, they'll be back one day, just etching the lines into my Star Destroyer home. It's all good. If I just keep waiting, I'll see my family again. She doesn't want to leave. So that's in stark contrast to the beginning of Luke's story when all he wants to do is get away but Rey does have that anger inside and that kind of comes out a bit more in The Last Jedi but yeah I think it says something that the male character is not permitted but in a way permitted by the society that they live in to express that anger through physical violence Um, and when when Rey does that in The Last Jedi you know she attacks Luke it's considered transgressive yeah no, I love Ray when she's violent. It's magic. So yeah, they're playing off each other, like you say. He's calmer around her, and she's angrier around him. Um, but it's that kind of like yin yang push and pull that's what's so compelling about their relationship. Yeah, and going back to that whole unspoken quality, you get so much psychology in the like physical performances of the actors. Like that whole fight scene in the Force Awakens is still one of my favorite scenes in the whole of Star Wars. I think because you can just tell so much about those characters as people and about what they want from each other and about what they're carrying with them and what's really at the core of them. Again, because they're on their own there, no one's observing them, they're not performing for anyone other than themselves. 
like you really get this raw look at who they are and yeah kylo is much more vulnerable and tremulous than you might expect and ray is so much more angry than she would normally permit herself to be and yeah love it yeah even at the end of the interrogation scene he's like trembling his lip is actually like <laughs> you know trembling and he's got his eyes wide and he's staring at her in shock at what she's able to do and she's like leaning forward panting kind of looking angry she's shocked at what she can do herself too but it really does turn the tables and you see that again like you say in in the jewel and I think that's what so many people love about their dynamic is that she comes along into his life and kind of turns upside down and it's not at all what he was expecting she kind of appends things because of her status as this nobody from this nowhere planet who's not supposed to have the force or not to the degree that he does and she's had no training and she's stronger than she knows um but yeah she really rocks the boat and i love that yeah and she's fantastic this conversation's making me want to watch the force awakens again (laughs) i know i haven't watched either of the movies in full since the rise of skywalker came out yeah it it might be time (laughs) yeah you need to let the healing happen first, Kirsty. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So let's move on to The Last Jedi. Yeah, what this film does with the Raylo dynamic is magic. And I will pass the floor to you, Kirsty, to talk about what Ryan Johnson does in this film and how he takes it further from what The Force Awakens did. We've talked about this before, but a lot of people, us included, were kind of like from The Force Awakens, especially that interrogation scene, like we mentioned there's this real connection between Rey and Kylo and there was this like discussion going on, like how is that going to be explored further and deepened in The Last Jedi? And it was this big fanon idea that, oh, maybe they have a force bond because that was obviously a precedent in the Star Wars universe that would kind of explain that intensity of their connection despite having only just met. And that is kind of where Ryan went. Um, but it, it, so much of it is down to how he chose to depict that because it kind of comes out of nowhere. <laughs> Neither of them know what they're doing. They're caught off guard. And so it is, again, this idea of the Force being this higher power, bringing them together despite neither of them. Well, this is actually interesting, because I, I was going to say, but despite neither of them wanting it, but Ben seems pretty on board. <laughs> he seems pretty fascinated by it. Yeah. You know, he, he says, why is the Force connecting us, you and I? So he's definitely confused. Um, and he, he says that line as well that kind of, foreshadows uh luke's ending that he's like you're not doing this the effort would kill you um so it's confusing and new for both of them and i i think that's kind of supposed to hint at the overall themes and subtext of the last jedi that they're discovering something new together no it's a really beautiful blend of the cosmic and the personal i think him again with this idea of you can't escape fate you guys are coming together whether you like it or not because yeah that's sort of out of their hands the fact that they're connected in that way but then what's really interesting to me is their actual discussions once they are connected and what they talk about because you get even more of that sense of there being this dark mysterious past and that having to be like excavated and examined and you then get this crisis of morality i suppose for ray where she's basically having all her presuppositions about Kylo Ren challenged and her entire concept of right and wrong and the heroes and the villains and everything is turned on its head and you see this shifting in allegiances 
towards Kylo Ren, who she'd considered to be her mortal enemy and the most evil of people. And yeah, it's just this fascinating evolution. And I think it's so well done. Mm. One of the things I love about The Last Jedi, Daisy's performance is so incredible. Yeah, she's great. At the beginning, she's very effectively kind of putting on this mask for herself and for Luke, where she like almost has these rehearsed lines. You can almost picture her like rehearsing them in the Falcon with Chewie on the way to Act 2. <laughs> like, this is my pitch to get Luke Skywalker to rejoin the Resistance and be the hero that we need, because I can't be the hero. Yeah, the, just the way that she talks about, like, it's just, it's very rote. The idea of, like, oh, yeah, well, it's about the First Order and the Resistance. Of course, it's not about that for Rey. And, like, that's kind of the key to her story and to Ben's. Like, it's it's very personal for them. Yeah. And, yeah, you have that amazing shift when her and Luke are inside the tree. And he's kind of, like, pushing her, like, no, why are you here? Because he he's cut off from the Force at that point through his own choice but like even Luke can sense there's something more that Rey isn't sharing that it's not just that she's there as like the errand girl for Leia she's there for her own growth too that she needs something from him and that she she's afraid and she has these vulnerabilities yeah and then obviously over the course of the film she comes to realize that she's not going to find the answers that she needs like to that restlessness that desire she feels within herself in Luke that's not going to happen and the answers they have to come from Kylo Ren and again that's a very romantic idea this sense of restlessness this sense of needing to like identify your counterpart and achieve union with them in order to find this wholeness like I feel that's beautifully depicted in all its like complexities and dangers because they obviously come so, so close to achieving that union in The Last Jedi, but then it's snatched away from them. Hmm. I don't even know how to express it, but I love Rey's arc in The Last Jedi so much. Uh, the journey that she she goes on that, that Ryan and Daisy achieved for her. Because she really is like, Luke will give me the answers. He'll save the day. And then, as you say, like over the course of the movie, she realises that just isn't going to happen it does in a way at the end, but only because she left. And that makes him realise that he has to do something. But I also love that it's not the end of the story for Rey and Kylo and she doesn't necessarily find all the answers with him because they're kind of talking past each other still. Then they're just not on the right page at the time. And that's a classic thing for the second act of these kind of stories, right? Like it's pretty much what you'd expect. I know a lot of people, especially in hindsight, now we have the Rise of Skywalker, but even at the time, I remember people being like, well, wouldn't it have been interesting if she'd taken his hand? And it's like, yes, it would, but it would have been a very different kind of story. And at the time, I think we were saying, yeah, but if you have that, then the third act is tragic. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but now, maybe that doesn't apply. They threw out all of the rules. <laughs> no, but I, I do love it. Like I, that, that whole scene in the throne room where he is making this plea to her. And I, I think Ryan in interviews, I think it was the... Empire Magazine interview that he gave he compared Kylo's proposal there to Julia Roberts in Notting Hill you know I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her but you know and of course in that moment Hugh Grant rejects her because it's the second act so they have then have to have the painful separation right they have to do their soul searching before they come back together yeah um so that's kind of where we were at in terms of the mindset at the end of The Last Jedi that yes things would work out in the end because that's kind of the formula a lot of these stories follow. 
Yeah. Um, and yeah, Rise of Skywalker both fulfilled what we expected. So they do end it together and they do achieve that romantic happiness, but obviously then it's immediately stolen from them. So yeah, <laughs> but we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, I have another quote from Lutz, which is about um, Byron's work specifically, but I just wanted to talk about it in relation to the stuff going on The Last Jedi. Byron's unique manifestation of the myth of the wandering and outcast hero brings homelessness into a narrative of love by delineating it as a melancholy chaos that might possibly be ordered or bounded through a second self. Love might give the terrible internalised infinite of his desire a home. And I liked this quote because I felt this applied equally to Rey and Kylo. Was mm. In both cases, you have these people who are restless and they're seeking. They don't really have a home. And I feel like that's quite literal for both of them because they're both basically living on ships. There is set up this idea that they're supposed to have found their respective homes with the First Order and the Resistance, but that's clearly not the case. Yeah. And then they bridge this gap together temporarily. Yeah, I mean, even in The Rise of Skywalker, that's what's still a little confusing to me about the overall intent and messaging because it's presented at the beginning of that story and in my opinion it's not completely resolved that Ray doesn't feel entirely at home in the resistance or there's like a lack of honesty and transparency in terms of her relationships with characters there there's stuff that's left unsaid it's explicitly stated in terms of the scene between her and Leia where there's like there's so much I want to tell you and Leia says well wait until you get back and of course, that was intended originally for a scene between Leia and Han when he was going to tell Leia that he loved her before he left for Starkiller Base and then didn't. Mm. It's this idea that neither of them quite fit in where they thought that they would fit in. I mean, in the Rise of Kylo Ren comic, the whole story has been trying to find a home with the Knights of Ren. He does find a home, but it's not a good one. Yeah. Like, in a way, and you're right that it's complicated by what happens in The Rise of Skywalker, but for both of them, you just get these narratives of constantly seeking a home, like, in everything that a home represents, and failing again and again and again to find it, and so not being able to leave that sense of restlessness and incompletion behind, and... I really think that the power and the failure of The Rise of Skywalker lies in the fact that it does show them both finding a home in each other, and but then that home is destroyed, and the home that we're ultimately given for Rey, like on Tatooine, that just feels counterfeit. It doesn't feel satisfying because it doesn't have that build-up that we've had for three films, and then there's a completely separate, disconnected culmination, and I think that's why it feels so wrong. Yeah, Lutz talks a lot about longing. That's kind of like the driving element that these characters long for each other. Yes. Um, and I think that is what you see between Rey and Kylo, even if it's not always expressed explicitly, or if the characters themselves aren't even aware yet, because they take a while to get there. <laughs> but yeah, like you say, there is this notion in The Rise of Skywalker of finding home. But again, it's kind of muddled, because... I, I do think that the dyad is supposed to be their home for each other, like this idea of the binary stars, but then Ben dies, and I think it's described in certain places, like, you know, the Junior novelization that when he dies, it's that whole peace and purpose idea of, like, he's going home. I think it's explicitly said that he's going home when he dies. He passes into the Force. And then, of course, there's been this debate about whether 
Tatooine is meant to be presented as an actual new home for Rey. On the soundtrack, it's called A New Home, mm-hmm. that piece of music on in that scene. But then there's this idea of, oh, well, of course she's not going to stay there. She's burying the sabers and maybe it's a home for them and then she's going to leave. But it's still the end of her story. So are we supposed to take it as her her home and her culmination for this film? Yeah, I'm still not quite sure on those points. Or if it's meant to be, you pick the thing that means the most to you personally. <laughs> yes, yeah, pick a mix, filmmaking. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I feel like we're already talking a lot about The Rise of Skywalker, so are you happy to transition into that, or do you want to talk a bit more about The Last Jedi? Obviously there's so much we could say about The Last Jedi. I think we've talked about it before when when we did our Mad Woman in the Attic episode, that what we loved about The Last Jedi is that it felt, well partly, it felt so reminiscent of that moment in a lot of these stories with the Byronic hero where the, the heroine flees and it's a moment of true agency for her even if it's born out of this tragic miscommunication that when she rejects his proposal, you know, that's that's Jane leaving the church and going back to, well, finding the whole found family in her case literal but, you know, running to friends and finding other connections that help her on her journey but aren't the final step yes yeah i just really loved that about the ending of the last jedi i felt really hopeful that yes they were separated but there was still this connection there i think in the commentary ryan described it as complicated enemies was where they were at yeah because they'd been through all of this together they can't undo all of that they have these feelings for each other but they both feel like they've picked their side and they're they're kind of separated by that so there is this sense of hopefulness for the future yeah no based on like the structures for these kinds of stories it made complete sense that yes it's very dark now but there will be light at the end of the tunnel which there is in relation to each other they do find that happiness which is beautiful but you do need to like have bumps along the road and stuff and this is like the ultimate bump because it's framed in all the best stories in my opinion as this moment of profound moral choice where there's been this like build up of the relationship and all this like sowing of seeds to like demonstrate the closeness and why these people need to be together and why this union is so needed and important but then you find there's the snag which is usually some fun point of fundamental moral differentiation between them and that's the point of passing and then the reconciliation needs to come when that moral difference can be overcome and resolved yeah which i i do really love that in the rise of skywalker like you really you can't beat redeemed ben solo joining ray that's wonderful yeah no it's perfect and i'll always be grateful that we have that so in the rise of skywalker we clearly start off with them both in an interesting place and my personal feeling is that yes they're not going to go into what might have happened between the films but we know approximately a year has passed between the last jedi and the rise of skywalker and my impression is very much that this is not the first time they've had contact (laughs) since then have you read the novelization? Ooh, does it contradict me, Kirsty? It explicitly states that it is the first time. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure why they felt the need to do that, to be honest, because it kind of closes <laughs> options for future stories that 
explore that a bit more. Yeah, I'm definitely joining you on the death of the author train, Kirsty. Yeah, well, that's what's interesting <laughs> because I don't think that scene reads like it's the first time because wouldn't they be a bit more like, whoa, this has been a whole year, that's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just like, oh, it's you again. <laughs> I'm hoping that's something that they'll just ignore, to be honest. Usually the novelizations they're treated as like lesser tier of canon. They're fun. Yeah. I, I like reading them. But in the past, they haven't let a novelization stop them from doing anything. Oh, of so. course not. I just think it's interesting when they make these choices that like specify things that they didn't need to. Yeah, it is a bit weird. It's like, why would you close doors like that? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, as we saw from the Rise of Skywalker itself, there's <laughs> not really an adherence to all that peripheral canon anymore. Yeah, fast and loose, as they like to say. <laughs> but yeah, so we start off and the first like there's that weird moment in the forest where they're sort of communing with the force yeah. and there's sort of this like crossed signals moment <laughs> where <laughs> yeah like kylo seems to be able to feel what ray is experiencing through the force and ray seems to be able to feel what kylo's experiencing on the force because they both call each other out for it later on when they have the first proper force connection on Basana. i wonder if that's partly there to kind of you know, at the end of The Last Jedi, where she closes the Falcon door and severs the connection, there was a lot of discussion after the movie that, does that mean the Force bond is now over? Is mm. Rey able to sever that connection itself? Maybe this is kind of just to remind people, oh no, that's still a thing. Like, right, yeah. They can they can still sense each other, but it's kind of setting that up for the story. Yeah. What do you think? I feel like you're probably right. I think that's probably the purpose that it's trying to serve. I think I've complained before about the editing and I'm not blaming individuals when I make these complaints. I do genuinely think they just ran out of time and they didn't weren't able to make things as carefully considered as they were in The Force Awakens. But I think a lot of the problem with the meaning that does or doesn't, as it may stand, come out of that is just that it's edited in a really confusing way. So you just look at it and like the cuts between the visions and people's faces and so like, what what the fuck are you reacting to? Like are you aware that Kylo is also feeling things? Are you aware that Ray's out there on the planet? Like, you know? Yeah. It has this more tenuous feel to it, but that does kind of remind me again of like Jane Eyre and Mr. Rochester after they've separated. Yeah. That's that you know, she can hear him, but it's I don't know, it has this different feeling to like the more intense connection that they shared in the second act. Yeah. What do you think? I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, so I guess it's almost like this like ghost of a connection, isn't it? Because yeah. Because they'd sort of buried something between them at the end of The Last Jedi, because they'd both had so many hopes for each other and these dreams of coming together on the dark side and the light side, respectively, at that point. And those hopes had all been like, put, put aside and Ray's convinced that he's hopeless. And Carlos Kylo is like, you're going to join me on the dark side. <laughs> like it is this idea of like mourning, I think, on Ray's part in terms of how she sees him. And yeah, like, like just to move on to the like first proper force scene between them. So this is where she's at Pasana, right? Yeah, at Pasana, where Kylo's just in that ridiculous white room. <laughs> such a twerp so much much of the framing seems like unintentionally funny to me yeah no it's really weird that first shot of him from her perspective where he's like off center and like I think maybe the awkwardness of the mask with the rest of the outfit design 
Yeah. Um, and the fact that he, of course, is back in the mask. And they want to draw attention to that because she's like, split time is very on the nose, where she's like, the cracks in your mask. <laughs> um. Oh my God, it's so but funny. Yeah, I see, I see what you did there, JJ. Yeah, like, <laughs> I, I would describe the dialogue in that Force Bond scene as very primitive <laughs> or crude crude might be the better word uh it's quite crude dialogue and a lot of it is just repeated dialogue from the force awakens to be honest but part of me likes that because they were both basically reset at the end of the last jedi so we did mm. get ray becoming i'm a very good hero ray and in contrast we got kylo being like i'm more evil than ever yeah and <laughs> yeah so it makes sense to me that they'd both be going back to their old playbooks and I do like that they're still trying to reach each other, even despite that. Just because Ky- yeah. Kylo is still very much going to find you, going to tie you to the dark side, and you're going to take my hand. And Ray's still like, you're so vulnerable, and there's cracks <laughs> in your mask. And yeah, obviously not quite in that melodramatic tone of voice, but you know what I'm going for. Yeah, it is interesting because it is like they are returning to those roles. They are comfort blankets in a way, right? That they... They're returning to the roles that they had to each other in The Force Awakens, but almost at an exaggerated degree, like with his the red cracks in his mask and her and her pure white outfit. It's yeah. like to an exaggerated degree to make it a point. Um, that It's like, well, this is my role and this is why I'm different from you and can't be with you. And um, I think before the movie came out and we were getting like these glimpses of their costumes we were theorizing that it would you know that that's what it would represent this regression and them going back to the only thing they ever they they were ever good at you know that they had these roles for themselves where they weren't their true selves but they felt comfortable in a way um I just think I think that is there in the intent I'm just not completely convinced by the execution because I don't feel I think like Kylo's redemption, as much as I love the fact that he does redeem himself, obviously, it is such a heel point turn that, and it has the accompanying outfit change that it's like almost feels like a different character. Yeah, and I do think that's maybe the intent of, um, just just the way some of the creators have described him. It's like, well, this is Kylo and this is Ben, and it's like maybe that's just an oversimplification for me. Yeah, um, I think Adam's trying to maybe do something a bit more nuanced, but I'm not sure how much comes across for each member of the audience. It's hard when there's such little dialogue, but Ray keeps that same outfit even after she's died in it. So for me, that doesn't quite work because she doesn't move on from it. Yeah. No, I totally get it. It does get much dirtier, but um, I, I, I'm not <laughs> sure that counts. Because obviously in The Last Jedi, we get very deliberate and symbolically charged costume changes, which is something we probably could do a whole podcast on, to be honest. Mm. it's just not done in the same way and I think that probably points as much towards the like ideological concerns as, of the directors as anything else mm. but sorry I think you were saying something about that first Force Bond I also really like in that first Force Bond scene how you really get a sense that Kylo especially has been replaying what happened between them in his mind and and is truly tormented by it she says, um, I offered you my hand once. You wanted to take it. Why didn't you? And Ray's also actually tormented. Now I reflect upon the quotes that I've written earlier today. Um, you could have killed me. Why didn't you? 
So they've both clearly been thinking about this so much and I think they both know what the answers are to these questions but they don't want to admit them to each other and yeah I just love how stubborn they are. Bless their hearts. (laughs) Yeah. Idiots. (laughs) Perfect description. (laughs) I love it. Okay, great. Um, I believe we have another Lutz quote coming up for for the first in a while, actually. Um, Would you like to read that one out, Kirsty? To love the dangerous lover is to feel the creepy uncanniness of finding the familiar at the heart of terrifying strangeness. It is to love the uneasiness, the restless uncertainty, the inquietude of never fully knowing when we'll die if we'll find true love. Yeah, I feel like that describes quite well what's going on in The Rise of Skywalker because this is the first time in the entire sequel trilogy where you do get acknowledgement from Rey of what's going on with like Rey and Kylo in relation to other characters. It's very brief to the point that it's almost vanishingly brief and it's frustrating, so I find it so interesting. But I love, for example, Ray telling Finn about her vision of seeing herself and Kylo sat on the throne of the Sith. And yeah, you you can just see exactly what Lutz is describing in that moment because she is clearly so haunted by that desire. And it's this source of obvious like horror and like, how could I want that? Although at the same time, she can't deny that it's there. And... Mm. Yeah, I, I just really like seeing that acknowledged and just wish it had had a bit more airtime. Yeah. I do wonder partly if why all of this seems a little muddled and confused in execution. I wonder if it's partly because of how Star Wars has always kind of approached death as a concept, especially in terms of ascending into the Force. Mm. That that's seen as like not always a tragic thing. And often it's like this sign, like I said earlier, of going home, of finding peace and resting and reaching fulfillment. Um, because, of course, when we meet Kylo in The Force Awakens and when Rey meets him, he is like the the personification of death in a way, right? That mm. he looks like a Grim Reaper <laughs> yeah. in that costume and that he's Hades and the Underworld. So they're like muddling all of these different archetypes and metaphors, I think. And I think that's why his death in The Rise of Skywalker feels so discordant to some of us, because he was already dead in that he was on the dark side and that is considered a death in a way. And he comes back from it, but then dies again. Yeah. Yeah, but this this quote that we read out from Lutz, like the creepy uncanniness of finding the familiar at the heart of terrifying strangeness. That that sums up a lot of what you see in The Rise of Skywalker. And it's like a, it is the evolution of the dynamic because for better or worse, I know we've, we've critiqued it in terms of, well, it's kind of frustrating that you don't really get Rey divulging any key details to her friends about this or even to Leia. Um, and as a result, it kind of feels sequestered in its own corner of the story. Um, and it never really comes out into the rest of it it never really sees the light of day in that sense yeah but maybe that's just kind of like the part of the pain of these kinds of stories yeah you know jane's love for rochester is private too um beauty and the beast is like it's very much their thing and no one else can understand and that's part of the point yeah no i think that's exactly right it's even in the scene i described where ray is confiding in finn 
I think it's not an accident that we don't see any reaction from Finn to what she's saying because the point isn't what Finn thinks about it although he's obviously not going to improve um <laughs> it's about how Ray feels about that information it's a way of letting the audience understand that this is Ray's vision and this is something that is really frightening and disquieting to her and what we find out later with the whole I did want to take your hand, Ben's hand, that scene is sort of like a coda to why she feels so appalled by that vision. And the reason she's appalled is because on some level she does genuinely want that. She really does want to be with him. And that's the source of like grief and horror and anxiety for her because of obvious reasons. <laughs> and yeah, I appreciate that psychology because I feel like that's very very true to the trope and again it's just a fascinating choice for this type of movie making yeah like Ray seeing herself on the throne with him it is like him successfully dragging her away from the known world and into the underworld right that she would be separated from her friends that way and that's kind of what's posed to her at the end of The Last Jedi like that's why she rejects it because she actually values her friends too yeah so it is the source of pain and temptation for her but i i there's always going to be part of me that genuinely does feel sad that that's not fully conveyed to finn because of all people i feel like their relationship should have been depicted as closer than it was in the rise of skywalker yeah because of all they've been through together and i feel like that would have done a lot for finn's arc too yeah i have huge problems with Finn's whole trajectory in The Rise of Skywalker, but I feel like that's a whole separate episode. <laughs> that would be a very depressing also... episode because it yeah, would just it, be how awful it is. It's separate, but it's also not because it shouldn't be, I think. I think it should be a little more in his orbit. Yeah. No, I agree because, yeah, in The Force Awakens, they were so integral to each other's stories and you understood them in relation to each other to a large extent. Um, and obviously in The Last Jedi they're separated so that's not really a factor but then in The Rise of Skywalker it'd be natural for that to factor in again and they come close to it in a few scenes like the scene where she's confiding in him but yeah, then they don't do anything with it Yeah, I think so much of what Rey goes through is kind of hidden or only selectively shown to Finn in terms of like the scene that you're talking about where she shares that vision but doesn't explain exactly why it's so concerning to her mm. she tells him that palpatine's responsible for her parents right but he doesn't know that she's a palpatine i know that at some point he talks about a, a little girl was meant to be killed by this assassin sent by palpatine i'm not sure if that equates to him actually knowing her lineage so yeah that's a really good point mm. the whole palpatine genealogy thing i just it's like no yeah, that's the thing that I'm still struggling to reconcile with the choices around the archetypes and tropes of their story. Yeah, like so I struggled, to be honest, with writing notes about that scene. So obviously that's one of the big Kylo and Rey scenes in the whole movie, when there's first the Force Bond, when Rey's in his quarters, and then there's that like visually amazing like sort of dance around each other in the hangar. I love the way that's framed, like you say, as this dance between two people on opposing sides and that he's desperately trying to communicate with her and bring her over. Yeah. That's really interesting. And the way he amassed himself there as well. Yeah. No, it's beautiful. And like 
I'm going to try and like gloss over the Palpatine stuff as much as possible. And yeah, just because I want to focus on something else for the purposes of this discussion. So I do find it interesting how he resorts to what he is suddenly perceiving and seizing on as this similarity between them on account of their shared heritage, as far as he perceives it. He sees that as the key because for the longest time, He's had this question mark of why won't you take my hand? Why won't you be with me? And he's like, okay, now that we have this information, now that I know that you you have dark side heritage like me, what's the, what's the barrier? Now is the time to join me. And I feel like it's quite a nice like misstep for him. So it's sort of like a learning process for him. So it's like, no. <laughs> And it's like one step forward, two steps back in some ways, because ultimately what they both need to realise is that their connection and the bond they share has absolutely zero to do with whoever the fuck their parents are or what their histories are. It's purely about them as individuals and this bond they share, which transcends all of that and repairs the hurt and the trauma in the past. Like, and yeah. So that's sort of how I have to reason with that. Yeah. I also think it's very much driving home the point that if he keeps offering his hand in this way, um, she's going to keep saying no. As as tempted as she is, as on some level she knows that they do belong together, he needs to find a different way, and that way is actually by making real changes yeah. in his life um, and accepting things to an extent. Yeah, no, which is a positive step. So we have another quote from Lutz. Would you care to read that one out, Kirsty? The past pains must be relived presently, but in a reversed way, with the punisher becoming the punished. The dangerous lover obsesses about this revisitation, reliving, and he desires so strongly to make his violent thoughts reality that all his actions move towards this outcome. The heroine herself stands as a figure for vengeance, and the dangerous lover believes that all avenging must be satiated if he can punish her sufficiently. But the romantic appropriation of the dangerous lover, and this can be clearly seen in the Brontes, love acts as an interruption, disseminating the hard direction of his thought into a soft generosity toward her redemptive figure. His vengeance turns into a violent love, a passionate embrace. This love is the flip side of revenge, its other being. Love's violence bespeaks hatred transformed. I... Honestly, when I read this quote, I was like, well, that pretty perfectly describes everything that happens on the Death Star. I know. <laughs> so, yeah, I was like, okay, okay, Terry and JJ, I'll give you that. <laughs> I love this quote. I think it's beautiful. And it did really reinforce my appreciation for that whole scene and what's going on there. Because I do think you see like the very last vestiges of that like rage and anger that are obviously so much at the fore in the force awakens being worked out of both their systems in this fight um so it really is like a last hurrah for all that nonsense and as it goes on you can just see them getting more and more tired and ultimately like kylo raises his weapon like as if in a killing blow but you can see it's so much that his heart is not in it that he doesn't actually want to do her any harm and then obviously what it takes is for Rey as that figure of vengeance to actually stab him 
but that's sort of necessary for her to truly confront her feelings and her emotions in relation to him and yeah it's just I love it yeah I think we theorized about this before that we would see these characters fight again because of course we didn't get that in The Last Jedi and they have kind of reverted back to those roles but there would be this like obvious reluctance um because I I don't believe that Kylo even in The Force Awakens really wants to harm Rey no like I think he wants to like he said he wants to teach her but in this it's even clearer that it's like that they're fighting because they don't know what else to do they haven't learned to properly cross that boundary yet and they're kind of forced into it at this point because Rey actually stabs him and then (laughs) um has to to do something to get them out of that situation and then it all kind of comes to the surface right but it's definitely not what they both intentionally want from that interaction they they don't know what they want yeah exactly and i've just realized i skirted a bit over the conversation they have in the throne room of the old death star um so i really like what kylo says so i'll just briefly read that look at yourself you wanted to prove to my mother that you're a jedi but you've proven something else you can't go back to her now like i can't I definitely think that's among the better lines that Kylo has in this film. Um, and yeah, I think that just so perfectly fits into this like tropes. It's such a perfect beat in the wider context of this trope of the Byronic like demon lover, however you like to express it. Because it's it's just that moment where Rochester propositions Jane and asks her to become his mistress essentially it's basically saying well i'm doomed i'm morally degraded and there's no coming back for me and so the way for us to be together is for you to join me in my moral degradation so join me i think also when lutz is saying here the dangerous lover believes that all avenging might be satiated if he can punish her sufficiently we do kind of get that at the end of the last jedi when ben is clearly feeling so rejected and humiliated in that moment um, after Ray leaves, that he says to Luke, "I'll destroy her," and we, we can tell there's no real intent behind that. But at the, end, at the beginning of the Rise of Skywalker, of course, there's kind of this idea that Palpatine is telling him that he needs to destroy Ray to earn the Final Order's fleet. And I think, on some level, maybe Ben believes that he can destroy Ray by having her turn to the dark side, and that's enough because then they'll be together, and that's a destruction in its own sense. Yeah. No, I think that makes sense. There is actually a um, very brief scene with Kylo and Palpatine where Palpatine is like, she must not become a Jedi or something. And it's like, she'll never be a Jedi. And Palpatine's like, oh, you need to make sure by killing her. But it's clear that Kylo has absolutely no intention of doing that. His intention is just to turn her into something other than a Jedi, i.e. like himself. And yeah, obviously Rey gets her way instead, which is as it should be. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so segueing off that, the next thing I'd like to talk about is, <laughs> briefly, a quote from our favourite, Chris Terrio. So he said, Leia never really gave up hope that Kylo could be redeemed, and she knew that Rey was probably the way that it would happen. The two of them are this dyad in the Force. They are twins of fate, twins of destiny. <laughs> And this is like a quote where it's like half, okay, Chris, I, I'm on the same page as you. And then half, it's like, what is it with you and twins? I don't understand. <laughs> because, yeah, after the movie came out, there was obviously all this stuff about um, the whole purpose of Rise of Skywalker being about to reunite the twins and stuff. 
And there just seems to be this real confused messaging in terms of what Rey and Kylo are. Because the concept of the dyad is from Joseph Campbell and it's explicitly about marriage and romance and lovers in that context. And like, while my opinions of Chris Terrio might be somewhat dubious <laughs> for reasons, um, I do think he knows that it comes from Campbell. And I think he even explicitly says as much in the documentary. Yeah, that's all he says about it. <laughs> and it's just strange because, well, in that case, you know it's related to marriage, yet you're also equating them to twins, and it's just very strange and perplexing, especially given that what comes next in the story for Rain Kylo clearly indicates that it's not a sibling-esque connection at all. It's very explicitly a romantic one. Um. Yeah, it's hard to know, but my assumption when they kept referring to twins was that they were kind of talking about twin flames, as in, like, soulmates. Right, okay. But it's very unfortunate that they keep saying twins when we have actual biological twins in the story that they're then they're bringing into the same conversation, that they have Luke and Leia there. So they're really muddling things in terms of, like, what's your actual intent and messaging here? Yeah, I think that's exactly it is the muddling, isn't it, of the two different concepts of what they mean by it. But yeah, I think right. being charitable, you're right. They mean twin in the non-biological related sense. I mean, regardless of intent, I'm being charitable because I need to make sense of it for myself. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, if you guys aren't going to make sense over this, then I have to make sense over it for my, my own sanity. <laughs> so. Yeah, I feel like I should just change my Twitter username to death of the author at this point, because the longer we have this discussion, the more I like... Yeah, authors, they're all right, but do we really need them? <laughs> I, I just, I don't think that they know exactly what they're trying to say. Mm. So they don't necessarily clarify things as they talk about them. It just kind of gets further confused. Yeah. That's that's just the impression that I get from every time they say something like this. I'm like, okay, I, I kind of get it, but this part doesn't quite work or gel together. So... I think there's lots of throwing things at the wall to see what sticks in this movie, which I think was also the case with The Force Awakens, because that movie also had like a very rushed, frantic production by all accounts. It just unfortunately so happens that things came together much better for Force Awakens than they did here. Yeah, so so for our purposes, the dyad is something that we can take away and look again as you know, a, a common element of these kinds of stories with this type of archetype, mm -hmm. right? Yep. This idea of them being twins in the force or twins of fate, kind of a soulmate thing, which I think Terry also called them in the Skywalker doc documentary. Um, it's something that you see in these types of stories. So I think we've talked about it before, like Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, the whole whatever our souls are made of, his and mine are the same. Um, yeah, I think that's something that you see a lot in these kind of stories and it's just it's it's definitely something that I think is prevalent throughout the sequel trilogy I know it's given a name as the dyad in the rise of Skywalker but we see it very much as that kind of yin yang soulmates kind of forced together yeah um element across the story exactly I do really like the dyad concept I know it's slightly contentious for some people but it's something I can appreciate and I also like how it sort of recontextualizes the connection that they have across all three movies 
and even before the events of The Force Awakens, because, yeah, as we see in the Rise of Color and comic, we realize that there's that connection there long before they've even met. So, yeah, I feel like that opens up some interesting possibilities for storytelling. Hmm. And this is kind of aside from the point that we're discussing here, but when Terrio says Leia never really gave up hope that Kylo could be redeemed and she knew that Rey was probably the way that it would happen. This is actually interesting to me for a number of reasons, because Leia did give up hope. We saw that in The Last Jedi, and Luke kind of restored that for her. But there's this idea that that's somehow unshakable for her, and I actually think that's contradicted by the story itself. And the idea of Leia knowing that Rey was going to be the way that happened. I, I do think that that was like hinted at in some of the side stories like resistance reborn where leia can sense that her and ben have a connection Mm. but is that something that's clear in the text of the movie itself they don't they don't discuss ben at all yeah that's a really good point i i do feel like it's making assumptions about information that's revealed to the viewer and you're absolutely correct, Kirsty, because that information just isn't revealed. <laughs> like, it's the sort of thing we, as like hardcore fans who like gobble up all the side material and everything, we can infer that from certain lines of dialogue and exchanges, but it's definitely not brought to the fore of the storytelling. And I think that sort of ambiguity, again, go back to my previously raised complaints about the editing. <laughs> is what makes it so unclear what's happening even you know in terms of the editing of when leia dies and the impact that has on rey and kylo and yeah like and how deliberate it is that leia is trying to reach them and that sort of thing because it just really doesn't come through clearly in and i definitely don't think it communicates what terio thinks it's communicating yeah and that's not me saying that things have to be overt in in a textual sense like it subtext would work just as well but i genuinely don't think that there's anything in the story that shows leia reflecting on the idea of ray redeeming ben Mm. like there's not there's not anything that could hint at that yeah as far as i'm aware yeah no i I agree with you it's just not there basically okay (laughs) i'm like i want it to be you know because i think that's a lovely sentiment i would love for leia and ray to have had this no hold barred conversation about what her son means to her and what he means to Ray. Um but that's not there. So unless that was like a um a scene that they tried to work with some of the layer footage mm. and and then it just didn't pan out. So I do really like to think that if Carrie hadn't passed away that we would have absolutely had that sort of characterization and scenes with her along those lines because yeah, mm. it is one of those terribly sad missed opportunities of the sequel trilogy that we never really get that fleshing out of the dynamic between Leia and Ben so we know she loves and Mm. cares for him but of course they never get a scene and it's sad yeah okay cool so to move on slightly just so that we can keep it like under three hours (laughs) there's a really interesting thing of note in the moment where Rey heals Kylo where the act of healing him also removes his scar. And this is very subtle. The film doesn't actually call attention to it. But I just wanted to bring it up. It's a very cool detail. And in the Lutz book, she goes on at great length about the scar and what it means. I was wondering if you could read out the quote from The Dangerous Lover, Kirsty, that I've highlighted. Yeah. 
The deeply unhappy, estranged brooder, with outward signs of the darkness that is inside him, has become a ubiquitous trope for the dangerous lover narrative. Rochester's scarred face after the fire of Thornfield signifies his lived punishment, but also his exiled status. Jane's love is his only redemption in life. Yeah, and I think you absolutely get that symbolism with Kylo's scar in the sequel trilogy, because he obviously gains that scar in the fight scene after he's killed his father and that scar is like this living constant reminder of what he had done in killing his own father and committing patricide so yeah i just find it really interesting that that scar is actually erased and i think that choice to erase it also is reflected in that flip that you get from kylo to ben because i love adam's performance in The Rise of Skywalker, I think he does a really good job. And I don't want to speak for you, Kirsty, but I imagine that we both think that the way he performs Kylo versus Ben, it almost does feel like a completely separate character. Like, just in terms of even the body language, it's radically different. And, yeah, I feel like this vanishing of the scar, that's also a signpost to this it's really like a separate individual which Star Wars is guilty of doing at various points because it was also kind of like that and how it treated Anakin versus Vader and yeah they're still often spoken about like they're separate people when it's like no they're not though <laughs> well that's the thing I think it depends on your own personal perspective and reading of the character across the story because I, I don't consider them separate people so when he does make that quote-unquote switch I just think it's that he's finally free from that mask and that persona yeah. but he's it, i think the tragedy of it and i do think this is what comes across in the performance for me at least is that this was the person he always was mm. but this is this is the only time he's actually free to behave like that so um I, i'm sure it works as oh it's a completely different person for other people but to me it's like oh that this is the way it should always have been yeah yeah, I included this quote and it's it's kind of stuck with me for years actually because this is something that on my first reading of it, so after The Force Awakens when she gives him the scar, um, I remember this was like four years ago, I got an ask on Tumblr from someone who was like, well, how do you expect Rey to fall in love with... Like this was when Raylo was, I guess it is still now to an extent, but considered this incredibly ludicrous <laughs> idea. And people were like, but she gave him that big ugly scar and they were thinking of you know, something like Phantom of the Opera, like how could <laughs> how could she love him? How could you expect that to they didn't even they didn't believe that this was like part of um him being a romantic archetype, right? Yeah. They thought that that was a contradictory thing. So I brought out this quote and I was talking about, you know, the Joseph Campbell, like healing of the wound. Um and this has just stuck with me. So even before we got the fact that she literally heals a scar, I hadn't anticipated that being so on the nose, but it's definitely in keeping with it. Yeah. Um and of, of course anyone who knows the story of Jane there knows that that's a part of Rochester's story as well. So um yeah, it just fits really well. And I I think that at least that part of the story was conveyed effectively. Yeah. No, I do really like it as a choice and is also complemented by the whole scene with Ben and his father because the removing of the scar, it's almost like this removal of the guilt and the burden he's been carrying with him since he killed his father. It's permission to continue and to live again because you sense that he's just being caught in this vortex of absolute misery and self-loathing 
after The mm. Force Awakens and even before The Force Awakens. So, yeah, you're right. He's just so much freer and it's like he's just light again and can really move. Even his body language is so heavy in The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi and also for like the first two thirds of The Rise of Skywalker. And yeah, he's just so sprightly and mobile and stuff. And oh, it's a yeah. pleasure to watch him as Ben. Coming back to the part where Deborah says Jane's love is his only redemption in life. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, unfortunately, I do think that is the case with how The Rise of Skywalker is executed. Um, because as much as I love the fact that Ray, obviously, when she stabs him immediately, um, scrambles to rectify that and shows mercy and forgiveness and love and obviously that continues on Exegol mm-hmm. um, in terms of like explicit forgiveness from his family I this is where I struggle because then we have also that quote that we read out before from Terrio where he says that Leia always believed in his forgiveness and, and that he could be forgiven and make changes and we do have Han appearing to him but that's a memory Mm. that's not Han himself so is it the fact that Rey is the only person who offers him his redemption in the end or or do we see that from his family because I think and we're going to get to it later in terms of how Ben is acknowledged and kind of treated after he passes um, I don't think it shows an explicit like reunion with his family in that way yeah yeah we'll talk about that later (laughs) well i just think it's pertinent to this quote because the idea of ray's love being his only redemption in life i do kind of think that's where the story takes it yeah no i agree with you definitely in relation to that point yeah we only ever see that reconciliation with ray i think they try to do it with leia in that leia kind of does that weird thing where she holds on to life or like her body's still there until ben dies and then they both disappear so the idea is that they're both going into the force together, but then later she appears with Luke and without Ben. Yeah. So it, it's not fully that way. Yeah. I think the omission is troubling in that respect. So yeah, you're right. I know the editor said that she liked to think that like Ben was vanishing to be with his mother when he died. But again, that's like inference and it's even questionable whether that was like the complete intent because she's like oh I'd like to think and it's like you're the editor surely you know what you were trying to convey <laughs> <laughs> you guys made these choices the movie didn't just happen or, or maybe it did I don't know <laughs> oh, whoops yeah. a movie <laughs> oh, yeah we're, we're driving ourselves crazy thinking about this stuff yeah <laughs> oh my god but yeah like that Ray Love it's magic pure pure magic I mean, I like that in the sense that it definitely, you know, unequivocally positions Rey as the protagonist and this kind of heroine in the story. Obviously, her role is more than redeeming Ben. Yeah. Um, as as Jane Eyre's is, but um, so I, I like it for that aspect. But it just makes me look at the Skywalkers themselves differently, unfortunately. Yeah, it makes them seem like a bunch of assholes. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why I spoke in such a hushed voice. But... <laughs> I do not approve. I don't, I don't even... It's really hard to like separate the writer's intent through what comes across and then, okay, I don't think that's conveyed effectively, but I have to assume that the intentions were good somewhere along the way and it's just not completely there in what I'm seeing. Yeah. But 
yeah, I don't I don't think it's that the writers want to make the Skywalkers seem like assholes because that's definitely not the text of the story by the end. It's that they're Ray's new family and they love her. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to track and figure out how you feel about everything. Yeah. I think they underestimated the power of Ben Solo. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on to when Ben and Ray get to Exegol. So you have the most romantic of romantic tropes in that Ray has gone to Exegol by herself. Her headspace is that she's left behind Kylo Ren and she loves him. She wants to be with Ben Solo, but she considers it completely hopeless even after she leaves him because, yeah, she looks very distressed and upset. She flees from him. Like, they're not having a conversation at that point. So he's not like, uh, Ray, I think I might be having a change of heart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, would you agree with that assessment, Kirsty? I just want to make sure we're on a similar page in terms of how Ray perceives Kylo at the point that she goes to Exegol. I think so, yeah. Um, Because then that makes it more magical and wonderful when Ben chases after her and runs to the soundtrack of I Need a Hero by Bonnie Tyler. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're betraying the fact that we've watched way too many fan vids and not the actual film itself. (laughs) The the superior way to experience The Rise of Skywalker. (laughs) And he endures a really horrible beating. When I rewatched the movie in preparation for this... Like, I was actually really struck by how violent that scene with the Knights of Ren was. I was like, oh Not just God. that part, the part where Palpatine throws him down the pit oh. and you hear his, like, entire oh, body Oh, God, no, Kirsty, that's a separate level of brutality. I'm but it, all that. of it, it's like, oh, my God, do you think you're punishing him enough? Yeah. <laughs> it's very sadistic. Yeah, it's... This, this movie, I know there's... Revenge of the Sith exists in this canon so whatever but this movie not just the ben stuff but even like ray melting palpatine's face off i'm like oh my god you made her do that to her grandfather and ray's absolutely (laughs) brutalized as well it's gross it's not very good well yeah ray literally dies and we get a good long look at her dead body kirsty it's very morbid (laughs) it really is but yeah, the part that I wanted to focus on just now. Sorry. Don't worry, it's fine. It's very easy to get distracted. It, it just is. The part that I wanted to focus on is that you get that amazing moment of reunion between them. And it's up there with my favourite for Spawned connections between Ray and Ben, to be honest. Like that moment when they feel each other's presence and then mm-hmm. Ray passes the saber to him. That despite everything that surrounds it and the pain and the suffering I just think that moment is pure transcendent beauty and love and you can just you know everything you need to know from the actors faces in that moment and I'll never forget seeing the trailer for the movie and seeing Ray's face and how everyone collectively in the Raylo fandom saw Ray's face and it's like she's looking at Ben and it's like you bet she was (laughs) because Mm -hmm. yeah and yeah I love that moment it means a lot to me Yeah, I'll say that that is part of the movie that works for me. Yeah. (laughs) That genuinely feels like a continuation of that level of intimacy that they had in their Force Bond scenes in The Last Jedi. So they've had that separation, that regression, and then they've kind of come back to that. And it's it's even better because he's finally on the right path. Yeah. No, it's really wonderful. Yeah. And I actually have another Lutz quote here, which is about the union that the lovers find at the culmination of the narrative. Um, And yeah, I thought it would be interesting to bring that up in relation to this 
exegol sequence. Um, so would you like to read it, Kirsty? I've highlighted it. Mm-hmm. The singularity of the hero and heroine's love and the reasons for their coming together are something only they can know. The simple characterization and plots of many important dangerous lover romances express the sense that there need be no drawn-out explanation for love. In fact, it can never be explained. This silent meaning describes the absolute singularity of love and points to its seeming fatefulness, its unexplainable, unhistorical presentness. Here it is. It appears out of darkness, carrying with it always this darkness. Silence keeps the lovers both joined and standing in a nomadic tandem to the rest of the social order, always on the outside of what they are near. Yeah, I really like this quote. And I just wanted to bring it up, especially because the scenes between them at the end of the film, they are silent. And Mm. we are completely relying on the looks and expressions and the body language of the actors to convey what they're both experiencing, what they're both feeling. And I understand and fully get the criticisms of that choice to have no dialogue at all. And I would have liked something, you know, just some sort of closure, I suppose. But at the same time, I can appreciate it on the level that it's this form of love that's so transcendent and quasi supernatural in its nature with these two, because they're almost like on this other plane, you know, they're like these demigods with their supernatural powers and yeah they're like elevated in that way and there's a limit to how much of that love and that bond that we can access from the outside so you get these glimpses without fully being able to immerse yourself in it and that works for me on some level how do you feel about that Kirsty? um coming back to how we were saying at the beginning of the recording that um this book does kind of provide some comfort and that it reminds us of a lot of the ways that these kind of stories can go that um it's not just about literal silence between them mm. and what's passing between them but that um this type of romance in the darkness is kept so distinct and separated from the rest of the story or whatever else is going along in in the world that they inhabit yeah um so it provides some comfort in the respect that this might be kind of an explanation for why Ray never divulges the nature of this relationship to anyone else that maybe she's unable to express it fully that no one else would truly understand and that even after Ben dies it's something that she carries privately yeah and and it's painful but maybe that's why we love these stories because there's an element of pain and tragedy to them um that it's just theirs yeah for better and worse um yeah, so I completely get it that um, a lot of fans are really upset that we never saw like the prodigal son returning in the sense that Ben didn't join the rest of Ray's friends. He didn't kind of come back into the fold of the known world in that sense, that he is kind of forever exiled. But maybe that's just the way it goes for the dangerous lover sometimes. Yeah. Now Lutz does actually give a lot of space in her book to tragic outcomes of these stories and the ways in which sometimes these characters are just doomed and there isn't like a way out for them there's also lots of talk about happy endings and unions and what you'd expect from a book about love stories but yeah it's interesting to know that it isn't inevitable that there's always a happy ending which yeah and a lot of people even regards to to ben's story it's not necessarily that everyone 
thinks that his story is unequivocally tra- tragic. Yeah. Um, for some people, the fact that he comes back to the light, kisses Ray, they share that moment, and then he passes into the Force. You know, I've seen that described in like the the novelizations that, and, and I I genuinely think even though I don't think that it comes across in how it's executed and the way that that is so clumsily edited and paced and everything, not no shade to the performances, they're incredible. But I, I genuinely think the, the filmmakers think that it's this touching, uh, uplifting moment where he rejoins his mum in the force and Ben Solo has returned. And death is not necessarily a tragic thing at that point, it's that he's making peace with himself and then achieves that sense of nirvana because of that yeah i genuinely think that might be their intent i don't think it's about punishing him or punishing ray Mm. i think that's what they wanted to come across and it just doesn't quite work for us yeah no i agree with you i think that's what they were going for like i don't think they were aiming to upset anyone or be malicious it's it just so happened to transmit that way I'm always going to think the pacing's absolutely bizarre. Oh, no, it is. <laughs> to go from the high of a kiss to then that, and it's like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> His smile begins to fade. He slumps back. Ah! Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's reverse slightly. Um, because, yeah, I just wanted to talk about them coming before Palpatine a minute. I, I'm not mm. going to talk about the silliness of him only just now learning they're a dyad and be like, ooh, dyad juice, ooh. Um, because, yeah, that's too silly and that's not the topic of this episode. Yeah. Well, yeah, we need to do a whole Palpatine episode where I think we do run with the Aphrodite thing for some fun. Yes, that'd be amazing. <laughs> I would love to do that. <laughs> yeah, Ian McDermott makes a great Aphrodite, so, yeah, I'm totally down for that. But, yeah, like, I just wanted to say, and tell me if I sound mad, but that moment where Ray and Ben are before Palpatine at the throne, it really does look like some kind of like satanic wedding to me, <laughs> like against their oh. will. Like in terms of they're literally forced to their knees, like he's in black, like a bridegroom, she's in white, like a bride. There's like an evil priest standing before them and their sort of and their union is cemented through the priest's actions. But it's all like a perverted marriage slash wedding ceremony. You know, so it's like this awful mockery of what their union should be because it's being exploited by him. And yeah, I think that sort of that depiction of cruelty, that's part of why people feel so upset by what happened. And of course, it makes sense because it's the bad guy. He is going to be doing wicked, nasty things. I think it just feels a little bit excessive sometimes. Hmm. I do wonder if this is another reason why The Rise of Skywalker doesn't necessarily work for me in terms of these moments of symbolism because they do kind of feel like um, perversions of symbolism that we've seen in the rest of the story in a way that just doesn't make me feel good about it. Like, um, I, you know, the hut scene in The Last Jedi, to me, that is a symbolic marriage. Yeah. And that's those, those two characters come to, coming together of their own volition. It's private. The force theme is swelling that's like a positive iteration of that and as you say this one is quite visually disturbing and then you think about what Palpatine's actually doing to them in that moment it does feel very violating yeah um but that might be the explicit intent again I'm kind of like trying to find I don't know a way to make sense of that so if that is like in the intent of JJ's to kind of build off of that symbolism to show that kind of 
the dyad can be exploited for Palpatine's purposes, but that feels very dark to me. Again, I'm just, I'm kind of surprised by how much of this movie does feel very dark. Yeah. No, it's like, I, yeah, like it just feels like it's a bit extreme, I suppose, because they frame it as there's this beautiful connection with all this power and potential that they share. And yeah, it makes sense that the bad guy would want to exploit that. But it's just, yeah, it feels like it's corrupted somehow. And then they reclaim the purity of it with what comes at the culmination. But I think because that is so brief and it's snatched away so quickly, you can't really rejoice in that too much. And so you are mostly left with this rather morbid feeling. Well, yeah, and because for most of, well, pretty much their entire lives, the dyad was separated and they were alone. So the that they are together so briefly, it's like, overall, does that feel tragic to us or does it uplift us? And I guess that just depends on the personal perspective of the viewer. Um, but like you're comparing it here to Rochester being blinded and Jane's torturous journey when she flees Vaughnfield Hall. But as, as we're saying, like the emphasis is on how does that make us feel overall when we step back and whether the trials are worth it in the end. Yep. And for some people it is, and they think the ending of the story is hopeful and that's great. But personally, for me, and I think for you, um, it, it just doesn't quite add up. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Yeah, like, so obviously you get this extended torture of Ben, where Palpatine tosses him off the cliff, which is just a complete dick move. He actually says that it's because Vader tossed him off a high ledge. Which... <laughs> 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 It's like, petty. yeah, you petty bitch, Palpatine. It's like, oh my god. Um, <laughs> and it, like you say, it's unpleasant. You hear bones crunching and stuff. Like, it's absolute torture. And then Ray, she's obviously very badly wounded and hurt when she has to confront Palpatine. And then Ben, like, and to the point that she dies. <laughs> and then Ben, like, he has to crawl out of that pit and literally drag his broken body, his like broken limbs across that space to reach her. And he has to see this woman that he loves so dearly and who has like precipitated this complete transformation within him. He has to see her lying dead before him. And it's this terrible cruelty. And Adam's performance is incredible across the whole scene because you just see this unbearable agony in his face. And yeah, it just breaks my heart every time I watch it. I must have rewatched that scene an ungodly number of times. I can't. <laughs> it's very, very upsetting. I seeing Ray dead actually is really upsetting. Yeah, I, and I don't even know if that weight is understood again. Mm. Sorry, talking about this. I don't know if it's grasped. Like I saw the other day that they're selling tops cards with Ray's dead body on them. <laughs> It's like, Ray and Ben on Exegol. I'm like, she's dead there. Do you... What? I don't want a picture of Ray dead. <laughs> what weirdo does? So who's going to send that to Daisy Ridley to get a signature? Yeah. Like, I think the the way that their suffering is lingered on and stressed and exaggerated, I think that makes the brev- brevity of their happiness that much harder to accept because they are so happy in those seconds when they're together and they're looking at each other's faces like starving people, you know, because they're just feasting on each other. 
and not in a cannibalistic way, you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> or a sexual way. Yes. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> um, and yeah, like it's just a beautiful moment. The kiss is wonderful. Like the actors are wonderful. The gazes are wonderful. And yeah, I think just that premature cut off to it. It's just very, very hard to deal with when you're that invested as well. Because obviously we came to that moment with so much personal investment and we really wanted that, you know, we really wanted that like expression of love between them. But yeah, it. I'm not sure if it makes it harder to have had the kiss and then have him die immediately after or to have not had the kiss at all. <laughs> yeah, I'll never know that. <laughs> Uh, I keep trying to make sense of each part of the story in terms of like thinking about what JJ might have intended. And part of me wonders, and maybe this is me giving him too much of the benefit of the doubt, I don't know. But there, are, because there are so many different segments of the story, you know, you have Ray with Ben, you have Ray with Finn and Poe, and then you have Ray in terms of like how she feels about the Skywalkers and wrapping things up at the end of the, the movie. Mm-hmm. I genuinely think for JJ, it's like, okay, this part's going to have a happy ending. Then this part has a happy ending. And it's like epilogue after epilogue after epilogue. It's almost like they're trying to do things like Return of the King style, where you think the movie's over, but they're just wrapping up that part of the story and then on to the next part. And um, so them getting this kiss and having this happy moment, I think maybe JJ thinks that that's a happy moment. And then and then she goes and hugs her friends. And then she takes the Skywalker name and it's all good. But... <laughs> It's like each part is undermined by the next part. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I know what you mean. (laughs) I think that's why it's easy for me to be so positive about specific scenes and specific moments. So I do think there are specific scenes and moments in this movie that work tremendously well. And I think your ability to enjoy them depends on your ability to divorce them from their context. (laughs) essentially right it's just weird that we have to do that in order for the movie to work emotionally yeah exactly so i have no hesitation about saying that it just doesn't work as a cohesive whole it just does not and that's because of all this confused jumbled messaging when it comes to the thematic stuff that's going on uh, mm. because yeah it's very hard to come away from it with a clear reasoned argument for what they were trying to communicate with this movie yeah it's like if i think and again i'm sorry i'm jumping ahead but the whole like ray being on tatooine and then seeing luke and leia there as force ghosts i think judging by what the editor has said about how they you know they didn't consider ben being in that part of the story because it's about ray luke and leia they don't they don't see the connection between the story as a whole. It's like, well, that scene was about something different and this scene is about Ray and Ben. But like I said, it kind of undermines it because that comes after this, but it doesn't build off of it. It's just a different part of the epilogue. Yeah. So the overall messaging just is not flowing. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Cause it's just like, this part is, is over. Ben's story's told the end. Yeah. And that's something that I think could have been drastically improved if they'd had Ben present in that scene in some way, because then it would have at least meant there was some cohesion and like perhaps a little more closure for Ray, because yeah, Ray does not get closure in this film. Um, I just quickly want to bring up another Lutz quote, um, which relates more to like the that coming together, that union, and then the loss that follows. So this is from Lutz. 
The poignancy of love and romance comes from the sense that, once the full presence of love arrives, the characters will be gone, they will die to the narratives, there will be nothing left to say. In the classic love story, Romeo and Juliet, not only do both the lovers die in the end for love, but they are doomed as soon as they fall in love, and the play is a slow movement toward death, a play of mourning. The death is their love, love equals death. And I think this underlines both what happens in The Rise of Skywalker and also how The Rise of Skywalker goes wrong. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I, Deborah lets us seriously uh, be my therapist through all of this. Oh. So I really appreciate it because this quote, and I'm sure I'm, I'm getting the impression that you feel the same way, mm-hmm. is kind of validating how we read the story. Because at this point, and obviously I, I do have to think again, coming back to JJ, I think this is what his perspective is that like, okay, the lovers are finally on the same page. They kiss, they confess their love. It's all good. That's that story told. And so the characters have achieved their purpose. And so he dies, mm. you know? And the idea of the play being a slow movement toward death, the death is their love, love equals death. This idea that Ben was always going to die in the end and this was what it was working toward, but it was working toward that moment of love at the same time. Mm. And it was all the same thing. Yeah, because I think where it doesn't achieve what Lutz is describing is exactly in that choice to continue the story beyond that moment. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also connected to the choice to tell this type of love story to begin with. So I think the problem is that JJ sees it as one of several threads and he considers them all to be either of equivalent importance or perhaps even the Ray and Ben one to be slightly secondary to other threads of the story. I think again it comes back to the idea that they couldn't just wrap up this story, they had to wrap up the entire saga. Absolutely, because I think really for the sequel trilogy to have that emotional weight it needed to commit more to this story of rain ben and make that the main through line and the point to be honest of this series of films and i just think they chickened out for the reason kirsty said that they felt oh actually no we're wrapping up 40 years of storytelling we can't just focus on these new characters we also have to make it about luke and leia again and yeah, I feel like that ultimately undermined the story of Ray and Ben, and it meant it was treated as an, as an afterthought when it should have been like the whole point of the story they were telling. Yeah, and because those scenes after this are about other things, they couldn't have Ray thinking about Ben yeah. or pondering the weight of her loss because then it would have been about that instead. Like The overall messaging of those scenes would have been different and they desperately needed it to be hopeful and happy and Ray finding her place and hugging her friends and so it just it does undermine it as you say um and it's really unfortunate because I you know I'm I'm trying to be charitable I'm trying to look at these scenes in isolation because I think that they did and see them on their own merits but again coming back to this idea of it being Romeo and Juliet I just wish that that tragic tone had been confidently there Mm. Yeah, in, instead it's kind of presented as the positive and then abandoned because they have to get to the next part of the story. And I just wish that had been fought through a little more. Yeah. Because I think it would have made a huge difference. And I, it's such a shame because so much of this story is executed so well. And then at the end, it's like, well, we need to get on to other parts of the story. So, 
we're, we're not going to allow Ray to truly feel the weight of everything that's happened here. Exactly. Because there are lots of examples of this sort of story where there's the dangerous lover, the Byronic hero, however you like to describe him. There are lots of cases where that story ends unhappily, where the romance has a tragic ending. So it's not that we're objecting to the tragedy and the culmination in death. It's like if you look to something like Wuthering Heights, obviously the context of that and the characterizations are drastically different. But I think what Wuthering Heights does so well that something like The Rise of Skywalker doesn't even give a thought to is that idea of grief and mourning. Because you have this sense building up from the very first page of that novel. You know that like Catherine has died and you know that this man has hang-ups and he is obsessed with this woman. And then it's just about a story taking you there and giving you this window into their love for each other and their emotions and you get this very honest and raw and moving portrayal of the grief and the mourning process and the pain of having that other person who is your counterpart this other half to your soul like goes beyond like more like grounded romantic relationships is that metaphysical sense of your lover is another half of yourself and you just feel this awful absence like in inside yourself when they're gone and the Wuthering Heights just explores that with so much like empathy and like really gives that spotlight to the pain and I think it's just the complete absence of any mourning on Ray's part that I think is the greatest injustice in terms of the storytelling and it's Star Wars, so of course I never expected like half an hour of like grief and like Ray's being driven mad by sorrow over Ben's fate and stuff. But you can communicate great depth of emotion very simply and very briefly in a film, and there was just nothing. And I feel like that was a great disservice to everything that had been built up with Ray and Ben. Yeah. I mean, it works if this part of the story isn't important to you because it that lack of resolution and catharsis allows you to kind of pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, which is how they went. So, Yeah, so basically what I have in my notes is that the lesson that we should take from The Rise of Skywalker is that we need to let women write things. Um, and that sounds like a flippant, silly remark, and to an extent it is. And it's not like every woman loves these kinds of stories. It's... Yeah, like, and it's not to say that a woman would necessarily do a better job. I just feel like I, I'd like to think like most female writers would at least have a greater sense of empathy towards Ray's character and greater appreciation of what that sort of event would mean to her and the necessity of actually reflecting how she would feel in the aftermath of something like that. That's the thing, if you choose to take the character on this journey, then you have to acknowledge it. I mean, we talked about that final scene where she goes to Tatooine before. It doesn't feel quite like Rey. It's like she's being used for the purposes of this wider scene in this meta sense. Yeah. So it doesn't feel like the capstone to her story. I know other people feel differently because um, the part of the story that resonates most with them is this idea of found family and Rey being adopted into the Skywalker family. If that works for them, that's great. We're talking about how we feel. It doesn't feel like the same character who just went through this. It feels kind of disjointed. Yeah. 
like it almost feels like a counterfeit version of Ray to me because I feel like we see the fullest expression of Ray and the happiest version of Ray I've certainly ever seen in that moment in the throne room, Palpatine's throne room, when her and Ben are just finally together. That smile that she gives him is like the purest expression of happiness that Ray ever gives in any of these films. And it's lovely. And I feel like we're seeing Ray her truest self there. And then we see her in that final scene in Tatooine and she's just completely enigmatic. Her face is very neutral. You can project anything onto her, essentially, in that final sequence. And I just feel like that's a shame because, yeah, it does ultimately just reduce her to this handmaiden for the Skywalker legacy. And it denies her the realities of the personal journey she's just been on. Yeah, and if you go by the storyteller's own comments on that scene it's not it's very much about oh we needed to get the twins on to Tatooine together we needed Ray to bury the sabers so that they were together and they found their peace and very little of what they've said correct me if I'm wrong but I don't really remember anything that they've said about what that scene means for Ray. so the idea of her like calling herself Ray Skywalker I don't actually remember much of that in terms of that being the culmination of Ray's story and them speaking about that and that being the focus it just doesn't seem to be about Ray in that moment, unfortunately. Yeah, no, exactly. She's kind of secondary, which it's really sad. I obviously don't want to end honest being sad <laughs> and like negative about things. Like, obviously, we're always going to be honest about our feelings, but again, I think Kirsty and I would both agree that we're at our element when we're enjoying things and we're talking about what works and what we love in Star Wars. Would you agree, Kirsty? Yeah, and this is why I still love the sequel trilogy, because so much of what these characters share does work for me. Yeah. And I, I do believe that this story that has resonated with me pretty much my whole life in various guises, I think it's still there. I just think that it's not 100% executed in the best way possible for me by the end of it. Yeah. But I, I do think the bones are there. I do think they were trying to tell the story. Um, there's just parts of it that I prefer over others and that's that's fine yeah so you know no absolutely and I'm just going to beat that drum again for transformative fandom because I'm just constantly amazed and impressed by how vibrant and productive the Raylo fandom is it's just been amazing because we're what like almost five months out now from this movie and everyone is just producing so much incredible art and writing and they're finding ways to make the story right on their terms. I know, I know it's not like taking a magic wand to it. It doesn't like make that the official sequel to The Rise of Skywalker or anything like that. But I think it just shows the sheer force of people's love for these characters and their belief in the potential of their story. Um, mm. So, yeah. like I look at that every day and it always brings me happiness and hope for Star Wars because there's so many awesome people in this fandom and I love you all. Yeah, and I was thinking about what the overall point to take away from the sequel trilogy is going to be, not just for us personally, but, you know, in popular culture. Um, And we're only a few months out, as you say, so it might be too early to tell, but already I am kind of getting the impression that the main thing that most people are taking away as audiences um, is the Ray and Ben relationship across the story those two characters um and also luke's character arc in the last jedi i think that has made a huge impact as well yeah good and bad (laughs) we love it but i know there are people who feel very strongly about it in the other direction 
as long as people are respectful that's fine um so i i think going forward it's going to be this as the big takeaway from the sequel trilogy rain kylo ren's relationship um because that's like that's what's thematically consistent over this story and uh, they did this thing that they talked about it openly that they didn't really plan things out from the beginning and i'm not talking about plot like point by point i'm talking about like what is going to be our message for this why are we telling the story and i just don't think they really did that to the degree that they might have needed to to have something that felt um thematically and narratively consistent yeah and unfortunately it does kind of show in this final movie yeah but i i think that those characters are kind of what have been taken away by popular culture and that's what's gonna last yeah so no i agree um i also just want to finally um before we have to finish make a point about authorship one of the things that struck me in reading the Deborah Lutz book is that there's this real shift with this character type, which is the Baronic hero, because when the Baronic hero was actually being written by Lord Byron, that character usually did not have a happy ending. It was usually thwarted love. And the idea was that the character was so much of an outsider to society and so beyond the usual framework that love was just an impossibility for him essentially phantom of the opera yeah kind of that sort of vibe (laughs) and it was only when you get to the point of people like charlotte bronte and emily bronte who come along and they fall in love with that type of character and they find it fascinating but then they obviously come to it from a very different perspective from someone like lord byron and specifically they come to it from a woman's perspective and they see that character and they're like but why does he have to have this like awful like ending where like it's just thwarted and nothing is actually obtained by the end of it and they found a way to take that character to take that character and give him this counterpart who was like his equal and just as strong and just as well defined and were actually able to find some sort of like wholeness or union for that character at the end of the narrative because even in Wuthering Heights where it ends tragically you still get the very very strong idea that they are reunited in the afterlife that is not the Mm. end for them that they do find something like after their mortal lives have ended and that's their happy ending because all they ever wanted was to be together they didn't necessarily have to be together while they were alive so they're perfectly content being together as ghosts and it's all good and happy um and in jane eyre obviously jane and rochester get married so that's the quintessential happy ending for a love story and i really think that the outcomes for this type of character the baronic hero it depends very much on the values and priorities and experiences of the person writing that character and what they believe to be possible for that character because i really just think that with the sequel trilogy there was ultimately a judgment where kylo's done too much he cannot live and i think that informed the ending that he was given yeah, I think maybe that's JJ and Terrio's perspective and it might not have been Ryan's, but we can't know for sure. Yeah. I don't think we're ever going to get a solid answer on that. Um, but I think that maybe that this is why you were saying some of these, it might have been cool to have this story written by a woman and to see maybe how it would have been different then, right? Yeah, because of course. different people are going to bring different perspectives to it. And I, it's it's just kind of 
striking me over again how controversial the Brontes were during their time, oh, yeah. but how controversial this has still been in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> and um and how that feeds into why we love these stories, because they do shake things up and they do challenge people's perspectives and they challenge the heroine so much. Yeah. Um, and I, I just love Ray's story. Yeah, no same. And whatever objections I may have to how it all wrapped up, I'm very, very grateful the story was told. And I'll always love the story and the characters and find value and meaning in the love story. So, yeah. Me too. Thank you for talking all of this through with me oh. <laughs> over these past few months. I think it's really helped. Good. Yeah, it's been a journey. I know some people are probably laughing at us because it's like, oh, are you still not over this? Oh. It's like May. <laughs> um, but, you know, th- this character, this story, Ray has meant so much to me. And she she always will, but it's like kind of I don't I I do I'm starting to feel like I'm kind of breaking away from it a little bit, and not in a bad way, but just kind of emotionally disinvesting because the story's told now. Yeah. Um, and just just have been trying to make sense of it over these last few months and turning things over in my mind as more stuff comes out from the creators and we've gotten all these like extra little like the novelization, all, all these different ways in which they're kind of telling the story. And um, now it's coming to the part where all of that's going to be done. Yeah. So saying goodbye to the sequel trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, thanks to you too, Kirsty. Like, I really love doing this podcast with you. And yeah, it, it's like a wonderful thing. And it's also like my therapy. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just really, really good to talk through everything. And yeah, that is lovely. So thank you. Yeah, thank you to all our listeners because I know that these characters mean so much to you too. Yeah. Like that's, you know, we're all here to celebrate these characters and kind of mourn things and express our frustrations <laughs> and listen to each other about what worked and what didn't for us. And it's so complex as to why things don't work for us. You know, we all come to it from our own very personal perspectives and yeah, it's it's good. Exactly. <laughs> we're all in this together. I think that's the message to send. Like that and that's the marvelous thing about fandom isn't it like no one needs to like go for all the angst about how things ended up on their own like there's this big community where there's all these like passionate strong feelings and yeah i I love it fandom's great or it can be great Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) it's a double-edged sword exactly (laughs) i feel like our corner of fandom is mostly pretty great so yeah that's something i'm very grateful for okay <laughs> Me too. right so we both have other stuff to get to so let's wrap this baby up i'm rachel and you can find me on stars nonsense on tumblr i'm kirsty and you can find me at bastila bay on tumblr and you can find both of us on twitter at scavengers horde until next time bye bye